The Cinema Limbo podcast is part of Podnose, the UK's leading independent entertainment podcasting network. For episode archives of Cinema Limbo and all of the shows on the network, visit us at www.podnose.com. You can also follow us on Twitter via at Podnose or send us an email via admin at podnose.com. This is funny. You think this is some kind of fucking joke, huh? Torture can never be justified, it's cruelty forcing even the most innocent to repent of fictitious crimes. But what can be said of a man who is willing to torture himself? What could drive someone to such depths? My name is Jeremy Phillips, writer, critic and victim, and you are listening to Cinema Limbo. This week's symposium covers the 1991 adventure caper Hudson Hawk, from a story by and starring Bruce Willis. My guest is Anthony Malone, who invited me to his mountaintop retreat in Rygate. Hello, Anthony. Hello again, Jeremy. Um, what can you tell me about this load of crap? <laughs> I, uh, yeah. Oh dear. Listener. It's going to be that sort a, of conversation. Listen, listener, here's a clue of what I think of this week's movie. So um, we are going to talk about the 90s artefact that is Hudson Hawk. And there is much to talk about. Yeah. Um, first of all, shall we just say um, this is a film revolving around alchemy? Yes. How would you rate the alchemy on display in Hudson Hawk? Do you think magic happens during this wonderful 90 minute film? Oh, I see. Is the film itself a work of alchemy? Yeah. Because it takes gold and turns it into shit. <laughs> what is this film doing in Cinema Limbo, which is um, rightly a, a forum for films which are underrated? It's a film. It's a forum for films that deserve reevaluation, and and on the grounds that no film is bad until I've decided that it is. Okay. So Hudson Hawk, when it was released in the summer of nineteen ninety-one, <laughs> why do I get the sense that you've made your mind up rather early in proceedings? Well, do you want to look at what I've written at the end of my notes? Well, the viewer, will, the, the listener will want to um, be. Uh, oh, de- oh dear, it's. Um, I wrote a rude good, word, good, listener. A cruel world. Um, um, it was released in the summer of 1991. It was. And what was the other big film that was released that year? Um, the only film that anyone of our age. Oh, would Terminator Two. Of course. Uh, which I didn't see until it was on TV three years later. Ah, well, we'll get back to Terminator Two. Um, and of course, there's the Planet Hollywood. That connection. whole yes, and again the whole era do, era of the, the uh, car crash the involving Michael Michael Aspel, which was a, a year or two down the line from from Hudson Hawk. Oh yes, I think yeah, Planet Hollywood was as well, I suppose. Yes, because um, it, it was around the time of Last Action Hero, which we've talked about on Cinema Limbo before, and which I have quite a high opinion. Um, mm. But Hudson Hawk was released summer of 1991. Um, Did Bruce, you see it? No. I was only ten. I barely went to the cinema at all at that time. Now I was—I'm a, a notch older than than you, Jeremy. Um, and I—I I was eighteen when Hudson Hawk came out, and my eighteenth year was a dog of a year. And I remember um, there are a couple of highlights, apart from the fact that I had to retake my A levels, which was a disaster of uh, oh, epic yeah. proportions. Um, the only film that people were coming to me to say you have to see this film was Terminator Two. 
because everyone was talking about the special effects. On the underground at Clapham South Tube Station was an enormous smirk. It's that smirk. It's the smirk that Tarantino told Willis to lose when he cast him in, in my opinion, one of the few roles that Willis has actually um, excelled at in Pulp Fiction. Um, I hated the poster for Hudson Hall on site. And I, I pride myself, and I'm sure you do too, that I can smell a piece of crap quite a fair distance away. Oh, yeah. Um, and I smelt that this was going to be a bomb big time. Empire Magazine also reviewed Hudson Hawk, and I can't say for sure, but I suspect it was a really nasty, grainy shot from the film, probably of him and Andy McDowell, and uh, they slated it. Hudson Hawk was a big bomb at the time. Um, the Hawk of the Turkey, that kind of thing. Yes. Um, and its cultural imprint since then is pretty much zero. Um, there's one big, big imprint, though, which I'm going to produce from my Sacra Magic, which Your we Sacra Magic before. Oh, yes. Mr. Richard E. Grant. And he talks about Hudson Hawk at length in his diaries with Nails. Yes. Um, and it's this book, which is really the survivor from Hudson Hawk. This is the um, uh, um, uh, required cinema reading, really, if you're into films. Grant's diaries are quite a laugh riot. I don't think they're massively classic, I have to say. And, but I do wish that he'd write some more about his other experiences. Mm. Um, he goes into Hudson Hawk in some detail in this book. We will talk about that in a minute. Um, so I didn't see Hudson Hawk at the cinema at the time, and I have not ever seen it until you asked me to. And I will be sending you the bill for my counselling um, after this film. There is um, arguments online, which I've sub subsequently found, that if you were 10 at the time and you hooked onto Hudson Hawk, that um, it's now a bit of a classic, you don't have the Blu-ray. There are worse films out there and indeed, the ending of the film I thought was perfectly fine. I enjoyed it. But holy God, is this... Um, well, <laughs> I lack the phrase to describe what this is. This film should have Jim Carrey in it, for a start, and not the guy from Die Hard. Um, this film was mismarketed. It was sold as an action film. It's not. Uh, this film is smug like nothing else on that's, earth. That's the reason why I would disagree about Jim Carrey playing uh, Hudson. Mm. It's because it is a vehicle for Bruce Willis's ego. Oh boy, is it? He yes. gets to sing. He gets to sing. He gets, he gets to, to dance, write. He gets to write. It's his only writing credit. He gets to play the. Um, the old, the, uh, the 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 guy from the Bronx bar who goes off to be a, a hero. Yes, he's man of the people in this film. He's the blue collar, wisecracking, um, anti-intellectual. Um, Absolutely. Um, and uh, but he wants to be the lovable. He wants, by the way, to have a bromance with his co-star Daniel Danny, da Danny Aiello. Aiello. They definitely they struggle hard with um, trying to whip up some witty banter. Yeah. Um, you have the walking um, piece of wallpaper, which is Andy McDowell in this film, and um, we'll get to her again. Third um, choice. Yes. Um, I know Grant mentions at least one other actress that he was surprised wasn't there. Um, it, was it was originally a, Dane, a Dutch actress whose name slipped my mind. And then a famous one that I can't... Isabella Rossellini. Oh, right, of course. It was probably off with uh, David Lynch. Um, so, Grant's 
I'd like to say is a good egg. I like Richard E. Grant. But when you and I watched Logan, yes. we had exactly the same reaction when he appeared. We both went, oh, God. And we really hoped he wasn't going to give the Richard E. Grant performance. No, and he doesn't. And he really doesn't. And um, Richard E. Grant, uh, to put it politely, has dined out on this film for at least 20 years. Because whenever you get him on a chat show, he will love to say that he was part of the all-time turkey that is Hudson Hawk. And there are far worse films out there. And... um, and actually, um, it's it's definitely him keeping this alive. We, no one would remember this film if it wasn't for him keeping on harping on about it and his diaries. Um, it's perfectly inoffensive. This film, it's it doesn't work. Um, it's it, as you say, it's blatantly a vehicle for um, Bruce Willis has made it rain money with the Die Hard series. Um, this is all in Grant's diaries, by the way, so he he can do no wrong. Um, he appears uh, apparently he's very good to Grant as well he's very chummy very blokey with him yeah. but he comes and goes like the weather he's there one day um, director could totally lose his control script, yes script it, immediately he yes. loses total the control the ego has landed um, and um, the script is non-existent it comes and goes Grant gets increasingly frustrated throughout the diaries by saying uh, this is now stretching for six months to nine months twelve months and we're being dragged back again um, I think Grant's the best thing in it. I think I'd probably agree. Because, boy, cause he, he gets the tone right. He has the measure of the material. I think um, Sandra Bernhardt, as his wife, <clears throat> is also... She knows which level at which to pitch her performance. <clears throat> and the two of them have great chemistry on screen. <clears throat> and, and in the diaries. And in the, and in the diaries, they became very good <clears throat> friends almost immediately. Now, I have a theory about their performances. Do you want to hear my incredible theory about no. the Mayflowers? Oh, okay. Okay, no, no, please. Roll credits. <laughs> the theory is that um, it's actually with Nail and Sandra Bernhardt's character from King of Comedy. Um, they have been cast in this film, and it's their performances that we're getting. Oh, I see. So Withnell hit the big time in this And this Hollywood is the film he makes. <laughs> so that's why it's the flared nostrils, shouty, flouncy arms, the the big, big performance. It's well, the guy shouting, I'm going to be a star in the Lake District. Well, Grant recounts that Willis saw yes. how to get ahead in advertising and was very impressed, as indeed were we all. Yes. And that's what got him into casting him there, because in that film he goes from you know, arm-waving Kenneth Williams mania to very focused introspection yes. and playing like an evil yuppie and all these different shades of, of one character in one performance and it makes it cohere. And I think he's maybe seen just the bits where he's running around with his arms mm-hmm. over his head yeah. and thought, oh boy, that's the kind of guy I want in my movie Yes, sirree. And they love what he does, and he's he's encouraged to go completely over the top, which he does. And um, and he originally started playing the character with a Texan accent, but he couldn't. Of course, he couldn't, he couldn't wrap that, yeah. his teeth around it, so he so, just asked to do it in his normal voice. So I think um, with Dale and I casts a really long shadow. Oh, absolutely. And that is that's a, a key classic British film, and it's also a film that could have eaten Richard E. Grant alive. 
Um, he might never have worked after that. He might never have escaped the shadow of Widmer. Um, or indeed had to get ahead in advertising. He then moves from that pretty much straight into this. And this is a role which could have killed any other actor's career. Um, it, it's particularly if you've been played by an American, I would say it takes, it takes a lot to completely commit to this because Grant knows what he's in. He's in a pantomime and yes. he's, he's absolutely keyed into that. Um, and then I went looking um, on his IMDb profile because I was sure that he'd been a lot more crap than than uh, he'd been in, and thought that he'd be king of the the um, you know the B grade movies. That that's why he's constantly on shows apologising for being in Hudson Hawk. That's the worst piece of rubbish I've been in. Implies he's been in lots of other rubbish. Wrong. He's got an amazing career, um, and particularly in latterly where he's dialing it down. He dials it down in Gosford Park. He plays a really bitchy butler in yes. Gosford Park. Um, and as he sneers so beautifully, he's so he's a bit queeny and he's a bit um, bits kind of. He likes to just mess with people and stir things up and look down your nose. Mm. He thinks he's better than he is and all of this, and he's just doing it with his performance. It's a really nice. Um, Sooner or later, someone's going to cast him as Murray Melvin's son. <laughs> because they look alike and they have the same hairstyle. And they both have a very good line in beautifully enunciated bitchiness. Hmm. And Grant is, um, is I'd say, he's quite a beloved actor. Um, he's yes. certainly endeared himself recently with his little video about joining Star Wars and geeking out big time. He's done Doctor Who. He's done um, all sorts of things which you wouldn't expect. Logan, for example... Uh, he's just a genuinely nice, good egg. The sort of guy that you think, if he walks up to him and said, you know, hi, he'd just be really approachable. As is Paul McGann. Um, mm. Very, very lucky. Um, so, and the goodwill does not seep away uh, with regards to his performance in this in this film. Sandra Bernhardt's a different kettle of fish. Um, love her in King of Comedy. Um, that really keys into her... Um, her uh, that, that edge of her which is unpredictable yes. uh, you really do believe that she's gone just slightly over the edge and that's pushed her towards chaining up Jerry Lewis in a chair and running down the street in her underwear mm. and um, I name something else that she's been in difficult isn't it the papers the papers well yes there's that um, so she's stand up she's Roseanne apparently I never watched Roseanne um um, and various other bits and pieces. She's worked, I think, pretty much consistently. If you look at her IMDb since um, since this, mm. um, she's either a great beauty or not, depending on your point of view. I think she's quite photogenic, um, but she's definitely playing a pantomime dame in this. Um, yes, but that just shows that she understands what the materials. Well, that's, I, I don't think that's what the movie is supposed to be. No, no, no. It's supposed to be a comedy adventure. I'll tell you what this is. It's meant to be the golden child. It's meant to be an Eddie Murphy vehicle. And if you look at something like Coming to America or the Golden Child, which are films which are pitched towards, let's get Eddie on, on screen doing his laugh and being a good guy. Those are actually rather good films. Those are well written um, and the ego doesn't get completely out of control. But this, it's wonderful to watch an enormous production go completely off the rails. It's wonderful to watch. <laughs> it's like a car crash. Yeah, it's, um, it's a wonderful like a car crash. Do you think it's as if we've sawn off 
the top of Bruce's head and we're having a look inside. There's an empty birdcage rattling around in there. Because he's clearly, when he was the waiter, when, before he got the moonlighting gig and he pissed everyone off on, on moonlighting, he, he came up with this idea of one yes. night in the bath about how you could time a bank robbery with show tunes. And unfortunately, uh, in my opinion, that's a really terrible idea. Yes, it's clearly a terrible it's idea. It's a really stupid idea, and it's not something you hang a film on. Because if you do do that as a bank robber, which he does, it turns you into a really crap bank robber. Um, use a bloody watch, which is what everyone else would do. Don't sing. Uh, it's not cute. And um, you haven't made me love you enough to um, uh, you know, accept your little quirks with the show tunes yet. Um, so there's an awful lot to unpack about this. There's this place in 90s cinema. It's what it, what it did to... Um, uh, I love that Tarantino told Willis, I'll cast you, but you're not going to use the smirk. That's just... And then Willis actually gives a good performance. He's He's done some great work as a real actor when he's made when he's forced to make an effort okay apart from Sin City what, what else Death Becomes Her very true um, Moonrise, yeah, King- Moonrise Kingdom um, I haven't seen Moonrise Kingdom I want to get around to doing that I like Wes Anderson a lot he's, very, he's, mm. the, he's the local police chief the little sort of small town cop very underplayed just sort of the little guy wanting to do the right thing it's a really weird choice to cast him, but he's really good. And as we are about to plunge into Hudson Hawk, we should just say, um, what do you make of Bruce Willis's current filmic output? Um, Where do you think his head is at? I would say that going through the motions is maybe too kind he can it's barely good. even stay awake during the take. Absolutely, it is. It is almost rude just to watch. Yeah, it's um, it's someone who clearly does not give a damn. Has he got mafia debts? Uh, is he paying Demi an enormous amount of alimony? I don't know. Um, She's remarried. Well, yeah, but um, they're doing nice Christmas photos together and all of that. But Bruce is clearly um, he likes money. I think it's as simple as that. Possibly, or he likes just to get out there. But even in interviews, he just doesn't give a toss. Um, I know Kevin Smith has had a pop at um, Bruce Willis saying he was terrible to work with. Um, there have been problems. I've never been a great fan of Bruce Willis. I do like him an awful lot in Pulp Fiction. I think he's great yes. in that. When he's, when he's made to act mm. and not just coast, he can do really fine work. The two films he made with um, M. Night Shyamalan. Or three coming okay, up Okay, yes, yeah. Um, he, he, he knows what he's doing in that because he's being forced to actually create a character and not just sail by on his star image. Have you seen The Expendables and any of the sequels? No, because, of course I haven't. Who do you think you're talking to? It's got the state in it. Yeah, but it's only a supporting role. I want him in the lead. So, yeah, that's very true. This, the Expendables is a, a curious egg. Uh, it's, a, it's actually better as a concept than in execution. There's a big scene in, um, I think, the sequel, Second Expendables, which is Willis, Schwarzenegger and Stallone doing the, the scene together. And it's as arch as you could possibly imagine. Oh, winky, winky at the camera. Um, it's rather painful to watch. And it's a great pity. Um, that's that's the sad thing because Arnold Schwarzenegger does have a sense of humour about himself. Yes, he does. He does have a self awareness. 
Sylvester Stallone is a genuinely talented actor and writer yes, he is. and director. Yes. And I honestly, I watched all seven Rocky movies this year, Lucky and I have a completely new appreciation for him as an actor and filmmaker. You have joined, joined really the clan. Ta- Absolutely. Genuinely really talented. Yes. Um, One man film industry. Yeah. It's like he's he's Terrence Malick trapped in the body of uh, like a, a giant sausage. I mean, uh, boring cineasts would say uh, uh, Rocky won the Oscar in the year Raging Bull didn't. Um, and that It didn't come out the same year. Uh, oh, actually, I think you might be right, because Scorsese said, I don't want the boxing scenes to look like they are in Rocky. Um, also, Rocky is a white man's dream. It's it's the American dream, absolutely. Mm, yeah, it is a fairy tale, Rocky. And if, yeah. you, if you take it in any other... But it's also a story about itself. Very true, Rags to Riches. It's literally the director's story. Yeah. Um, no, it's, no, he didn't direct the first one. Didn't he? No, it was John G. Avildsen directed oh, I the first know. one. I thought he and literally did everything on the, on the first no, one. No, he, he wrote and played the lead. On 2, 3 and 4, he wrote and directed. On 5, he only wrote. Uh, Rocky Balboa, he wrote and directed. And Creed, he didn't even write. He just completely ceded control to Ryan mm. Coogler and his writers. Mm. And it got him an Oscar nomination. And that is the mark of a mature artist saying, I'm going to take a step back here and just go with someone else's vision. And by the way, I'm sure, as you now know, that if Burgess Meredith was alive these days, it would be Emmys galore and he'd be the darling of uh, HBO. He'd be basically like um, the um, Philip Seymour Hoffman. What he does in Rocky is extraordinary. Yes. Um, but anyway, we, <laughs> we're, we're talking about good we're films. We're talking about how great Sylvester Stallone is. <laughs> trying to avoid talking about how awful Hudson Hawk is. Okay. So let me take my, uh, my, my notes. Yes, so I've got Air of Smugness... Uh, Grant's Diaries, and um, it's a short film. Oh, and of course, um, it starts with Hollywood's go-to genius, which is Leonardo da Vinci. Yeah. Well, it starts with a storybook. Which is really weird. Um, It wants to be the Princess Bride. It wants to say, here, here, children, come on up. Uncle Bruce is going to tell you a story. And it's narrated by William Conrad, (laughs) who was chosen because he was the narrator on The Adventures of Rocky and Bullwinkle. Oh, really? Because, again... Uh, Bruce Willis is I wouldn't I wouldn't say that he's necessarily an anti-intellectual in real life but it's definitely more populist tastes referring to watching cartoons when he is a grown man he talks of um, I wonder if you picked up on this Ig and Ook Ig and Ook yes in this film he also says uh, he's standing in the middle of Rome and he says what all those rocks and shit doing all over the place they're called ruins um, there is a there is a big line of anti I did fi- I did find that funny just referring to him as rocks and shit. Yeah. If we're if we're meant to be laughing at him, that's quite funny. Because the um, Grant and Bernhardt are doing anti intellectualism. They they um, Grant literally says that all of this stuff is just stuff to put on my wall in my office. Yeah. But they are crass and they are rich. Whereas Bruce is similarly anti intellectual. He's blue collar. He's man of the people. He can get away with it. And he's the lovable rogue. At yeah. least he wants us to think that. Um, yeah, we get Leonardo da Vinci. Um, and uh, um, He's building a flying machine. He's trying to get people to test it out, but they don't want to do it. It's a great set that opens that up. Um, oh, the, the design on the film in general mm. is amazing. Yeah. And even the, the locations are really well chosen. The, the Mayflower's headquarters were mm. built by Mussolini. So it's this fascist, brutalist thing. One of the great big N outside. 
Yeah, what about mm. Poseidon? And for Mussolini. Um, but it's perfectly chosen, and the film looks great, and it's filled with great actors. James Coburn's in there. Yeah. David, oh boy, is he paying for his swimming pool. David Caruso. Making, yes. a, making a complete fool of in himself. In fact, Stallone's brother is in this film as, uh, as one of the mafia heavies. And, and they make a joke about his brother. And also, he and his brother are called the Mario Brothers. Yes, they are. And there's a joke about Nintendo. Yeah. Folks, this is the, this is, there's so much meat to unpack from this Hudson is, Hawk. It's just is, unreal. It's the only Bruce Willis movie that name-checks Alistair Cook. I missed that, really, does it? <laughs> yeah, when uh, after they've after he's had a tussle with the butler who has the knives that come out of his wrists, yeah. Bruce describes them, him as a cross between Alistair Cook and a Cuisinart. Well, I went through this going, um, uh, taking screenshots, and, and underneath it, shot after shot was, nobody speaks like this. I missed that one. I'm a bit annoyed by that. I was trying to get to ten, to at least ten lines where it's, yeah, who's writing this rubbish? Um, this film is basically based around the key to time. Um, it's an assemble widget plot. Yes, you've got to find all the bits that are hidden in things all over the world. Yes. And when you get all the bits together, it'll give you ultimate power. Mm. Because it's the crystal as part of the machine that, da Vin that Leonardo made. Don't call him Da Vinci, that's not his name. Shakespeare isn't called From Stratford. <laughs> um, the machine that Leonardo built to turn lead into gold. Yes. Relies on something that he's actually sticking inside all of his other inventions, uh, which means all of his other inventions get ripped to shreds to get the magic widget out. Yes. And along the way, um, we we start off with an enormous number of really bad jokes. Number one on the list is that the Mona Lisa has bad teeth. Yeah. Which is why she doesn't smile. That's um, hilarious. Which was uh, fine. Okay. Um, Bruce Willis gets an on-screen story credit, and um, I don't believe for a second that he actually put pen to paper on any of this he originated the idea mm. and the idea is um bank robber uses show tunes to time the robbery that's all it is um and it's a bad idea um and then someone away someone robert Kraft, named after a processed cheese which is um quite a good description of this bloody film um he has almost no other credits doesn't he i didn't look him up I believe that his only other significant credit is a TV special in which Bruce Willis plays the harmonica. Well, now there's a bloody surprise. Yeah, we should maybe, if people don't know, that we should point out that Bruce Willis fancied himself as a bit of a muso. Um, yeah, he had his own blues bar band mm. and he released an album. Did quite well. I remember him on Top of the Pops doing a live performance, doing it in his white, thinking that. Um, him doing his um, blue-collar routine on top of the pops was going to chime with the people of Sunderland Good or uh, you know Sheffield. Um, so the, uh, I still don't understand why he's called the Hudson Hawk, but there is a picture of a hawk on the Hudson if um, because, we don't get it at the start. Um, his name is Eddie Hudson, and I think the Hudson Hawk is, a, is a, the name of a wind that blows on Staten Island. Oh, yeah, he waffles that about that time. Off, coming off the Hudson River. So he's named after wind. That's good. That's he's that makes sense. Well, because he because he goes in and out like the wind, but but singing like um, like air caught between Davis two Jr. panes of a double glazing. Like my double glazing in the kitchen. Yeah. So we we uh, we go straight from um, period Italy and um, Leonardo trying out his aircraft. I wonder if that will crop up later in the plot. Do you think that might be on screen for plot reasons? No. 
I think I'll just abandon that. Yeah. I think that was irrelevant. Um, and uh, then we cut to um, prison. Sing Sing. Which is a bit of a jarring cut, it has to be said. Um, and Bruce Willis is apparently coming out of prison um, for reasons. Um, burglary. He's been a burglary. He's been set up as well. And he drops the first of many F-bombs. This is one sweary film. It's a really sweary film. I mean, Ghostbusters is a sweary film. But this is... Even I was thinking, look, language, folks. Um, the DVD is a 15. I tried to find out what rating this film was when it when it went out. But I think um, 91... Even in 91, I would have gone, come on. This um, would have definitely been a 15 then. I mean, because... I would have stopped anyone over 18, uh, under 18 seeing this film for on the basis of quality. Um, he's chatting to someone called Gates... Um, who's saying, I'll uh, sort you out with a cushy parole if you do an auction job. And the Hudson's not having any of this. Um, and in fact, he comes out with the first of many apparently quotable lines. Mm. I want to teach the handicapped how to yodel. Yeah. So, it's definitely like a, a high school linebacker's idea of what constitutes funny dialogue. They want to try to make him... Um, sort of wisecracking, a bit, um, a bit Raymond Chandler because he's a burglar. Um, to have a patter, they're probably lifting a bit out of Moonlighting as well, which was um, uh, the blueprint for his um, roguish but funny role. Yes. Um, and none of these lines land. I mean, it is quite extraordinary. Um, what if Raffles was a prick? <laughs> that should be the tagline on the poster. I'd watch that. Um, so yeah, he comes out and he runs into uh, a friend called. Well, we don't find out who this guy is called until the next scene. Um, Tommy Two Tone. Tommy Two Tone, uh, because he owns um, a bar and all of this. And um, so we've had teeth jokes. Now we now the fat jokes start uh, because Bruce is constantly needling Tommy about his weight, um, and indeed it gets a payoff. Believe it or not, this joke right at the end of the film, which I'm. I'll try to remember to come to. Um, the other thread in this film is uh, Bruce, this is hilarious, just wants to get a coffee. He wants a cappuccino. He just, he, he's desperate for a cappuccino. And in this film, that equals sex. That's the whole thing with the film. He's trying to get to first base, either with Andy McDowell, and the climax, the finale of the film, is when he finally gets his coffee. When he says to Andy McDowell for the day, do you want to go for a coffee? It's basically the PG version of... But he doesn't drink it until Danny Aiello gets there. <laughs> His best bromance. Yeah. All the way through, cappuccino is treated as though it's some kind of elitist, rarefied um, uh, delicacy. Yeah. Blackadder was making jokes about it two years earlier. And without, without assuming the audience had to have it explained to them. Because they think... They've probably thought, if they've thought at all, um, that when he goes into the bar, um, a real sort of noir character, noir burglar, would go up to the bar and order a whiskey or a Jack Daniels, something like that. But no, it'd be really funny if actually he sits in the bar, surrounded by all these yuppies, and orders a coffee. And then the mafia shoot the coffee out of his hand. And then throughout the whole film, he's constantly going, I bet that's the Bruce Willis idea there. Yeah, definitely. But it makes no... I mean, 
I like the idea that he's really missed sort of the little luxuries of life while he's been in prison. And that just having a really nice cappuccino, really sort of carefully crafted by a really good barista, that's something he's really been looking forward to. But the way it's treated in the movie, it just doesn't make sense. It should be something... Either everyone's talking about a yeah, cappuccino, you can just like buy, walk into a coffee shop and buy one. It's, mm. it's fine. You can get, we, we've got time. You can get one right now. Or it should be something really weird and obscure. Like, oh, this specific sandwich from this particular place that this guy's... And they could, you could have a subplot about trying to track down this sandwich exactly. guy. Exactly. The rule of funny is you can get away with anything, however out there, as long as at the end it's actually quite funny. And when they're at the cafe at the end... It could be, turn out that the cafe is owned by the family of the guy who's ran the sandwich shop, and they all know how to make this wonderful sandwich. So they, yes. all, so they all sit around, and they all have these delicious sandwiches. We're spitballing ideas that they should have done on the bloody... Um, well, they were, they were rewriting this movie on the fly. And the, I think the big example in Grant's stories is the ending where um, Tommy comes back from the dead. Yes. And, um, and, but we'll get to that, because uh, it's hilarious. And also, no one was allowed to touch Danny Aiello's hair. Oh, I missed that little detail. Yeah, he was uh, very self-conscious about his hair. Uh, apparently, even his wife wasn't allowed to touch his hair because it's definitely not a fucking wig. <laughs> Are you absolutely sure about that? For um, legal purposes? No, he's bald. He is fucking bald. Well, he should own it, and he should sake. be a man. Yeah, nothing. If Patrick Stewart can get away with it in 1984 in June, then you know this is 91. You know, if the Telly Savalas. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Your Brinner, for God's yeah. sake. Anyway, we digress onto follicle matters. Um, they head off to a bar, um, and um, Clint Eastwood did a um, film about a cat burglar. Absolute power. Yes. And it's rather good. Um, it's a very Clint Eastwood film in that it's completely middle of the road. Uh, it's Gene Hackman. Gene Hackman is the president. Murders a girl, girl which while, in, in the house in the where, that he where he's been burgling, yeah. and hijinks ensue. Yeah, and it's a cat and mouse thing, and um, and that film is what Hudson Hawk would dearly love to be in its dreams, uh, but with gags. Um, they really want Bruce to be sold as a lovable rogue. Um, they man of the people. Um, it requires a, a degree of natural charm. And and it's it's so forced. Everything is. You're being told constantly how charming he is, rather than just him being charming. Yeah. Imagine George Clooney as this character. I did think about Clooney actually, um, particularly because in some of the moments where where Willis is mugging, I could see. I bet George Clooney could do that. Because Clo- yeah. Clooney will quite happily. Yeah. Just, think just of him do in, um, stupid nonsense. Hail Caesar. Um, yeah, or any of his coma other movies because they never cast him as a serious character. No, they don't. <laughs> uh, have you seen uh, Burn After Reading? Yes. Now that's an underrated Cohen film. If you he's me. he's great in that yeah. because. Have you seen Buster Scruggs yet? I have not yet seen Buster Scruggs. Oh, well, you do. I plan life. to. I will watch it before the end of the film calendar year. Right. I'm not going to talk any more about that, but um, you're in. In my opinion, you're in I, for a treat. I have already read the plot of that, but I appreciate you don't want to spoil it for the listener. Yeah. Um. Yes, so uh, Clooney could do this stuff in his sleep. Um, but anyway... Um, uh, oh, Robert Downey Jr. 
Again, um, perfect, absolutely perfect choice because, of course, he's got uh, charisma to spare, and he's got that—he's got that snappy, fast-talking yeah. way. Bear in mind, Wiz was cast as an oil rigger um, in Armageddon, um, and as a boxer in Pulp Fiction. He's—he's he's basically a lump of meat, and he—he um, he, he struggles to play characters who aren't sort of almost working-class archetypes. Yeah. Need a degree of wit for a role like this. That's why. That's why my thoughts turned to Jim Carrey because I. I think although I've got a lot of problems with his 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 um, gurning and his goofy roles, um, look at him in Truman Show, yes, and uh, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Um, the guys the, that's an intelligent guy behind all of that, um, and you mm-hmm. can modulate his performance. Willis just doesn't have the acting chops for that. No, um, that's why there's an air of smugness to it. People are just saying, just stick him on the screen, shovel any old shit up there, and Bruce will sell it. Um, and indeed, in Grant's diaries, there was definitely an air of um, it's just all hail Bruce when he walks into the room. Yeah, you get the same thing these days with Tom Cruise. Um, yeah, Tom Cruise wouldn't be able to do this. He doesn't have no, that. No. He doesn't have that natural charm and sincerity. Yeah, he'd if he did, um, I bet he'd do it under um, a lot of makeup. He'd hide behind latex, um, but you're quite right. He, I, um, I think he could probably. He, we know from Magnolia, Cruz can do. He's a very fine dramatic, actor. Yeah, um, but I don't think um, he was in um, Night and Day. Have you seen that? That's and the Cameron Diaz. Thing. That's an interesting one because it's a kind of shapeless load of nothing, where it's a film that's just trying to skate by entirely on. Charm. The charm and appeal of its leads, mm. and it doesn't work at all. And uh, Cameron Diaz no longer works in Hollywood; she's voluntarily retired. And um, that film's quite painful to watch because um, Cruz is mugging it up. Um, it's Mission Impossible, but with with, few, jokes, with jokes, yeah. basically, and it doesn't really come, quite come off. Um, and yet, uh, very shortly afterwards, he did Edge of Tomorrow, which is a totally different kettle of fish and brilliant. Because his, he's got a character who actually develops over the course of the yes, movie. Yes, he, he does start, some acting. He starts as a bastard yeah. and develops into a heroic character over yeah. the course of the film. We're talking and, about everybody except us and Nork. And what was Cameron Diaz's last film? Oh, God, it wasn't a Charlie's Angel, was it? No. no um, oh, that's going to be some horrible piece of dreck. Yep. Um, Not even objectionable. It. Is it uh, movie forty three or something like that? No, no, no. It's. I wouldn't say it's objectionable. I haven't seen it, but it it did seem like something that was deeply inessential. Which was the remake of Annie. Oh God, was she playing uh, Mrs. Hartigan, the the head of the orphanage? What? Well, I think give it give Cameron Diaz ten fifteen years. Let's we'll, she can be rediscovered again. She's a really great actor. Yeah. Um, but a bit like Sylvester totally Sloan, someone's kind of hamstrung by being incredibly beautiful. Mm, yeah. Um, and you know, in being John Malkovich, where she's deliberately dressed down, deliberately made to look yes. as weird and off-putting as possible, she delivers a fantastic performance. Yes, and she I think, does. And I think was shortchanged out of an Oscar. She nomination. gives a great comic performance in The Mask. Yeah. She holds with, with no acting experience yeah. at all first film and she's up against Jim Carrey and every piece of cartoon slapstick. Jim Carrey at peak Jim mm, Carrey. Absolutely. So yeah I'm pro um, Cameron Diaz. I think she's been totally misused and um, um, it's just difficult to, uh, for to find a role. Bad teacher. 
That was oh, a film that really, yeah. I think that I think that capitalised on her. I, I haven't think. seen it, but a film like that annoys me. That's um, a, an ITV thing, not not a. Um, it's a bit like Rock School, um, you know. School of Rock. School of Rock. Well, Rock School rock is the school. ITV version where they put Gene Simmons into a school, which I liked. But I didn't want to go see um, Jack Blackdirt, although that is actually quite a good. It film. is a it is yeah. a really good film. Well, in in Bad Teacher, she gets to play the fact that she, yes, she is this incredibly gorgeous movie star but also is a deeply horrible person because <laughs> that's the flip of um, what's that film is it um, it's either Julia Roberts or it's someone like Nicole Kidman who goes into a gangster school and is up against some really dangerous hard minds. Like, dangerous Michelle minds Michelle Pfeiffer that's the one thank you so that's where it's an inspiration story and she turns out to basically dead poet society with guns and ammo but bad teacher is she's going into a quite nice school but she is there purely for the money and to snare herself a rich husband. But don't you think that is part of a wider cycle of films, which is women can behave just as badly as men? Yes. And I, in my estimation, I would say that's fine as long as the scripts are good. And Bad Teacher are. was not a great film, but I did enjoy it. Mm. There have been a lot of... Um... Um, I mean, then we're getting on, back onto the Ghostbusters remake, which is one thing I didn't want to talk about anymore because I used to talk about it in every fucking show. Yeah, it didn't didn't work for me. Uh, a recent example would be the Spy Who Dumped Me on the cinemas, which is um, that just uh, didn't look funny. No, it didn't didn't ring my bell. I, I, I didn't. I, the title pissed me off. I thought the title was hugely unoriginal. Um, anyway, we're we're skating off. You see, anyway, we just get chatting about general page, cinema stuff. Page two of my oh, notes. This is going to be a four-hour podcast, Lights and Orc. Um, so yeah the mafia tried to get him to do the auction house job and at the bar is Gates and um, and so Hawk is given an added incentive to actually do the um, the auction job and so we flip to his place and out of nowhere with no no indication at all he's talking about show tunes yeah there's there's no indication of why he's talking about the length of these um and it's meant to be a big reveal that they're going to do a show tune show number when they're doing the bank robbery. Um, and essentially, this is because Bruce is a bit of a muso. It's to get him singing on screen, the soundtrack album. If you Google the soundtrack album. I would say that that is a misuse of the word muso. <laughs> That's true. Guy with harmonicos. Beca- because... I would I would say a muso is a person who has a deep rooted appreciation <laughs> and understanding or seeking understanding are of you, music. Are you saying that's not Bruce? In the same way that I mean, you and I, I have to say that you and I are sort of filmos or whatever. Yeah. In that we feel the same way about film that we have a great understanding, knowledge, and we're sort of always trying to sort of learn more yes. and understand more. Bruce Willis likes bar band music, and he can play the harmonica quite well and he can sing fairly well better than me mm. yeah and i'm not bad as well you know i've had the windows replaced <laughs> yeah but now that now i'm on the inside yes um but he i would i would stop short of calling him he's not a john lennon no he's not julian lennon no he can do one thing quite well in music and that's fine but he seems to think that that makes him a great artist rather than a competent one 
Yes, when Die Hard went through the roof, uh, so did Bruce's ego, and so did everyone's opinion of Bruce around him. So yeah. his creation with Joel Silver around him. The um, we we should be careful about what we say about Joel Silver because um, mm, he's uh, well, I I don't really know anything about him that I think would be actionable. I mean, he's a producer who is in the business of making marketable successful movies he's not an artist and i don't no, think he's ever aspired to he's be. a shouty producer and um and sometimes that's what you need to corral the troops he's had successes he he was extremely supportive of the wachowskis when yes, they made the was. matrix he let them do anything they wanted and the result was a huge hit that made their careers and made him a huge amount of cash so yes. he's a businessman grant and that, and details a, a very amusingly a shout-a-thon from saying i really don't want to be on the other end of that um, in the diaries um, but we're coming out of the 80s and into the early 90s where um, the, the what do they say that, that film is a producer's medium rather than a director's medium um, it certainly was at the time and you've got the blizzard of cocaine that was running through uh... <coughs> that was just uh, Jeremy clearing sinuses <laughs> you're, telling, you're telling yourself that yes um, uh, yeah so Joel Silver's, I think, uh, a, an example of a producer that's that's dying, um, and people skills are hopefully getting a bit better. Um, There's really only Jerry Bruckheimer now from that generation, mm-hmm. and it's a long time since he's had a real hit. I mean, we're now looking towards the big-hitting producers at the moment in Hollywood are Kathleen Kennedy yes. and Kevin Feige. Yeah. And Feige is well known for being mm-hmm. very creative, very collaborative. Yes. Um, Kennedy, less so. But nevertheless, someone, as far as I'm aware, who tries to foster a creative environment. Yes. Um, and opts for a more touchy-feely is probably a bit much, but... Um, no, it's a inclusive. More, a more, a more inclusive, um, collaborative... Emotionally intelligent. O- open discussion yeah. as a producer rather than screamed instructions because at one point in Grant's diaries Bernhardt says something out of order to Joe Silver and she is terrified and hides in her room and then it's Grant that rings up Silver I think and clears the air and says look it's all a bit of a misunderstanding all of that um, she comes across as really neurotic in um, Grant's diaries yeah. unfortunately um, but then her shtick is her personality so uh, fair play to her um, Getting back to the wonderful world of Hudson Hawk, um, the uh, the auction job proceeds apace, um, and there's lots of there's lots of amusing gimmickry. There there's is skateboards, and there's. I did one of those a bit of product placement going on there because there bloody well is later on in this film. Um, they decide to um, throw away their is their escape route, the rope by which they crawl across the, onto the building, yeah. to apparently cover their tracks. Yeah. Um, not to make the escape slightly more amusing down the line at all. Mm. Um, we've had a teeth joke. We've had a fat joke. Here comes the first of the um, racially inappropriate jokes. With And this is a zinger. I've never heard this one before. Apparently there are a lot of Wong numbers in the phone book. Yeah. Thanks Again, it's, it's, it's unfunny people making these jokes. And 
But don't you think that that sort of joke could be slid into any modern Adam Sandler movie and nobody would blink an eye? Absolutely. They just, they just go. It depends It depends on the attitude of the audience. They could yes. laugh at it because they think it's funny or they could laugh at it because it's idiots making unfunny jokes. And unfortunately, I think the multiplex audience uh, is in the main idiots. The kind of people who would find this yes. film entertaining would think that that was a straight mm. joke. Yeah. Mm. Unfortunately. So, um, yeah, Bruce Willis has never done a commentary on this film. I wonder why. Director has. Oh, really? Has he? Oh, yeah. Oh, my God, I've got to track that one down. Oh, is I... he is he political, or is he slagging it off left, right, and centre? No, he is... He's very proud of the movie, mm. in a way that feels monumentally insincere. Okay. Is he British? No. Oh, right. I thought he might be um, being ironic, in a way that's... Um, no, he, he, he really does sound... Um, it's it's odd to listen to. The last one he directed was Heather's. Yes, I heard that. Which is like a proper real film made by a person. And it's the, the jump from doing Heather's to doing this mm. is so stark. He gets eaten by Bruce's ego. Yeah. It's it's I wouldn't have liked to have witnessed this on set. It would have been quite bad to have seen a, a grown man treated like that. Um so they they they're trying to steal something on skateboards, which even a schoolboy would tell you this is going to be a really bad idea. Um, and then there's another fat joke. I'm afraid, folks. There's a security guard who collapses the uh, the seat, um, and brilliantly, in a moment of total genius, the entire floor of the film is pointed out in a line of dialogue to Bruce. Um, Tommy says to him, "You know, they invented something while you were inside. It's called a watch." And yeah. Bruce just goes, mm. and then goes out singing instead of actually timing everything down to the last second. Um, the problem with the, the idea is that it subtracts credibility from him as a master burglar. And so I don't believe he's a burglar for a second. Um, uh, and I just believe it's a bit silly. And I think every single school kid watching this would probably go, but isn't he going to be heard when he's singing? Yeah. Why Why is he singing these old tunes? I don't like these old tunes. Um, it's 1991. Even I don't recognise the tunes, and I'm a bloody dinosaur. Oh, yeah. I mean, um, Swinging on a Star, Side by Side, these are classics. I... Really? Yeah. Oh, well, then My you're clearly, the, then you're clearly not a muso. I'm certainly not. Um, but you're right. There's a bit of product placement on the skateboards, um, and they then they embark on the, um, on the actual burglary which is apparently one of the highlights of the film i don't know whether you thought that um was it i was left nonplussed by the whole i forgot what they're stealing um so have i actually um is it a painting um is it a statue it's something that they're stealing um um <laughs> <I'm>, <laughs> this lost is awful. To, uh, i've watched this film i'm sure i have but if you look at the opening of something like um, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Temple of Doom? Yeah. So the big show. Um, the big Bus- show Bus- Busby Berkeley oh, yeah. um, opening number of that. And that. If you're going to do a big show, you do that. But here, it's two guys who are doing some moves and singing sotto voce. Um, there's no sense of a countdown. There's no sense of a, a ticking clock anywhere. They've removed any of the suspense and the, the jeopardy out of the scene. Um, so you just think, why am I watching this? And indeed, is this a burglary? Because they've literally just walked in. Mm. Um, the guards are clearly stupid. 
Um, it's it's really odd. It's it's Bruce's single idea in action, and I'm afraid, folks, it just doesn't work. It doesn't, no. Um, I have finally managed to come up with a hook for the beginning of this podcast, which we'll do now. Okay. What can you tell me about the Three Stooges? Uh, the Three Stooges as, as comedy um, icons? Um, uh, okay. Um, do I think... don't really like them. No, neither do I. And neither does anyone with a mental age of about six. <laughs> because the Three Stooges are th- grown men poking each other. And yes. that's not funny. There's no, there's no wit. There's no. It's Stan there's and no, Ollie there's without no comedy. Yeah. There's no, there's no character behind it. Um, didn't stop getting remade though, did it? Uh, didn't stop people staying away though, did it? That's true. Apart from our friend Ian, who seems to think that that's a great film. Oh um, yes, uh, yeah, but uh, yeah, he loves his uh, his um... shite. That's, uh, he doesn't listen to this show. Doesn't matter. Well, now we'll know. <laughs> we'll find out. <laughs> Um, anyway, that uh, that show tune number appears on, of course, the uh, soundtrack album, oh, which is two tracks from Bruce, um, available from all good uh, record stores. Do you want to hear some reviews of the soundtrack album? Boy, do I. Review number one. Nice CD, seller easy to work with. That's pretty fair. Review number two. No problems. Cool. Number three. I love the two tracks with Bruce Willis singing. That's from a Mr. B. Willis in Beverly Hills. Bruce Brillis. Yeah. Um, and that's about it. Um, there's in fact, indeed a track called Ig and Ook. That's presumably a soundtrack cue uh, and, uh, by Michael Kamen. Well, God help him. I hope he... Uh... Anyway, um, Chase ensues. Um, more fat jokes as they go through the window. Um, and up until this point, the film is existing on planet Earth. Yes. We can agree on that. Because something happens which then um, basically says we're, we're in the land of cartoon now. Is it um, when the butler comes in and he's got knives in his wrists? Just before that. So the bit where they're falling through the air, yes. through the canopy, and Bruce falls into the next scene. Now, I took that to be like a match cut he's fallen into the chair within the scene but they cut from him falling yes. to him landing but it's not meant to be a direct connection no you're quite right yeah he doesn't literally doesn't fall through the pavement into an underground no no no, no. Room, but... but even so he's I, I didn't take the connection to be as him literally sort of cartoon like falling but into i think the next it's scene. from that point on where we go into the land of cartoon and particularly towards the end of the film where bruce turns into literally a looney tunes character oh god um but I think that's the marker. That's the non-naturalistic, um, apart from all the singing show tunes. Mm. Um, so, oh, it's a horse they're trying to... Um, it's a burger, of the course. Sforza? Yes, something? something like that, which is also the name of a computer game. Um, is it a horse-based computer game? Is it a no, hor- it's not. Is it, <laughs> it's is it's it a, a driving game. Is it a horse... <laughs> is it a... No, Sforza. Not Sforza. Sforza. No, Forza definitely is. Um, yeah. Yes, it is the Horsepower. sort of water. Um So, yeah, um, in an example of the, of the rubbishness of the script, folks, which we've been very rude about, um, um, Gates is says he's a bit into art. And Bruce has a look at the wall 
and on the wall is a picture of dogs playing cards. Yeah. And the audience now knows, no, he's not into art. He's a bit crap. Uh, Guess what Bruce says? He says, oh, you certainly do. So he's not content. The script is not content with just letting the audience figure stuff out for itself. It has to tell you. Um, and it also starts in that scene, the crazy lines that this film comes out with that some people find quotable. Um, and is incredibly um, um, rude as well. So they're talking about the English guy that's going to turn up, who's their contact. Shall I read this line out? Please. When's this Sebastian Caboot Buckingham Palace-looking buckler-head melon farmer getting here? Now, I don't know what that, uh, what planet that, that, um, that comes Who's from. Who's Sebastian Cabot? Um, he's a figure from history, and I can't remember. He's mentioned in Flashman, I think. Um, yeah, so they want to say basically an English type that's turning up. And he is basically out of the Avengers, isn't he, with his um, arms made out of knives. That's where this guy belongs. <laughs> arms made out of knives. Yeah, Edward Yeah, they, 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 they're, they're sort of spring-loaded and they pop out. Yeah. And he cuts Gates' throat. There's, yeah. his, there's your cut, my good man. Um, people do tend to drop and get killed quite um, gratuitously in this, in this film. Yeah. Um, and anyway, he buggers off with the horse. Um, now, at this point, Bruce Willis, or the hawk, as we should call him, has fulfilled his obligations. He has done the auction robbery. Um, Gates is dead, so that's his parole officer out of the... Um, uh, so he should walk away. Yeah. He should go, fine, bye, I'm out, I've done my last job. Mm. But he goes back to the bar, and he says to Tommy, do you know what, it's, it's just really peculiar, all this, isn't it? Yeah. So I think we'd better investigate. I think I'd better we, go in a I mean, DJ. I mean, we've read the script, we know we've got, we're in the rest of this We've movie. got at least another hour to go. Yeah. So, um... And, and by the way, if you read the paper, the horse apparently is going to be sold, even though it's been nicked. stolen. So what's all that about? So they, he hightails it to this auction house, and um, I think we both recognise the auctioneer, <laughs> John Savadon, isn't it? It is. No, I um, no, I'm not a Coronation Street fan, but I am a huge Blake Seven fan. So for me, that's Igrorian who's doing the uh, uh, the auction there. He, I, I've recently been watching Public Eye. Oh, yes. Very fine. Everyone's early, in Public Eye. The very fine early 70s, mm. very low-key detective show, which is basically a British Columbo. Yes, it's a vinyl show, that. Yes, very much so. And he appears in one episode as a Dutch art collector who hires Frank Marker, the main character, to do some investigating. And he appears to be doing an impression of Christoph Waltz. It's very funny. Now... You listen, listen to me, Mister Marker. Yes, it's it's so like Christoph Waltz. It's it's both wonderful and distressing. Mm. Have you got to the episode where um, Blake turns up? Yes, I've also seen the episode where Colin Baker turns yeah, up. Yeah, everyone's in public. Yeah. Eye, public Eye's, um It's a very fine little show. It 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 works its magic. That show, doesn't it? Um, because I, uh, I was watching it on Talking Pictures TV, so they've only been showing the existing series, which means it starts with the series of the main character being in prison oh, and right. being released. And yeah. that whole seven episodes is just about him adjusting to um, civilian life again. And he doesn't, oh, so, he doesn't take um, any cases at all. So you you mean the ones where he's in the uh, Brighton... Um, yes, it's... That's really good. Do you see the Stephanie Beecham... Um... Yes. <laughs> That, um, that looked like I, I thought oh my god this is happening live 
where it's um, um, a uh, he, at the boarding house where he's staying, and he's sort of keeping an eye on it while mm-hmm. the landlady's away. And um, Stephanie Beecham comes in as a character who turns out has had some kind of affair that's gone badly wrong, and she tries to kill herself. And it turns out she'd in fact been sleeping with the wife of her employer. Mm-hmm. And this was broadcast in 1969. Mm-hmm. And Marker is. Not totally sympathetic, but makes absolutely no judgment at all. Says, "Well, yeah, that happens," and try and he saves her life. That's uh, remind me who plays Mark again. Alfred Book. Thank you. His performance is the perfect example of not being able to see somebody act because he's totally natural mm. as Mark. He's extraordinary. Marker is a very ordinary man in many ways. But he looks like his job. He has yes, those, he has those right. rat-like features. Crumpled. Um, but he's never beaten down by the world. You because know. He, asks, he, he always expects nothing. Yeah. So there is, there's, there's no down for him. He's hey, already at the listener, bottom. There's a little um, public eye review for you. Yeah. <laughs> Who thought Hudson Hawk would ever... Um, well, I never thought I'd get to 45 if you're talking about bloody Hudson Hawk, so... Public eye is another matter. Anyway, um, Bruce sits down uh, in uh, at the auction. Uh, in his very 90s tuxedo. It is, isn't it? And also at the auction are some Arab sheikhs. Uh, yes, as there almost always are. In these, and uh, Andy McDowell. Sitting next to him. So what's your position on Andy McDowell? Uh, distant. She's... Uh, She's very good in sex lines and videotape. Oh yes, where Soderbergh really understands how to make her work. Soderbergh is a terrific actor's mm. director. He's a, he's really quite an all rounder. Completely unpeels her. Um, but I'm struggling to think of anything that she's been in where she has delivered what I would term a great performance. She's on autopilot in Four Weddings. Mm. Um, she's in Muppets from Space. Oh, is she? Well, yeah. That figures. I mean, she's, in my opinion, she's um, central to one of the greatest mistakes ever made in cinema history, which is Hugh Grant choosing her over Kristen Scott Thomas, even after Kristen Scott Thomas confesses that it's always been him in Four Weddings and a Funeral. You'd be very pleased to hear they're making a sequel to Four Weddings and a Funeral. I've heard I've heard that um, a little com- TV series, a comic it? relief and special. Doing, well, they can't do a reunion because of um, the late Charlotte. Coleman. Yeah, I, I refuse to countenance a reunion without her. It's such a tragedy that she. Um, well, hopefully, on. with a distance of twenty-five years. Mm. They will be able to right that wrong and have him uh, leave Andy McDowell and get together with Kristen Scott Thomas. She sends the film uh, flirting with Prince Charles. But I know, I know how that reunion is going to go. I know they're going to um, have a photo of Charlotte on some shelf somewhere. Oh, fuck off. Well, wasn't she getting together with some Texan at the end of the movie? Mm. So maybe she's gone off to live in America. Well, not in my head, Canon. Far from it. Anyway, into the auction. Um, comes to uh, very low-key characters who don't make much of an impression. And, They're all uh, eating chocolate bars. Well, they are that. I thought at that point either that's a really blatant piece of um, product placement or there's something gone wrong with the film because everybody's eating chocolate bars. This, in fact, turns out to be a script tick. Yeah. Um, but we are joined by uh, Richard D. Grant and Sandra Bernhardt, um, who are in this film a lot less than I anticipated, um, that it feels like they're there all the time. <laughs> oh boy, does it! 
Um, it's a fruity performance. They're going right over the top. Um, and to be honest with you, it brings a lot of life to proceedings. Um, Grant does over the top really well. Yes. I mean, if you want this sort of stuff, you want him to do it. And mm. um, he he just gets... I think um, he almost um, upstages... Um, in fact, he, I would say he almost certainly does upstage Bruce, who's a plank of wood. Um so he walks in and he's all arms thrown in the air. Exactly, it's the arm he's, waving. It is. He's a very physical actor. When you, if you do watch Hudson Hawk, and I do recommend listeners watch Hudson Hawk as we did. What are you talking about, man? I'm saying if you share my pain, watch his face whenever he's saying a line because he emotes almost every syllable. You get a different expression for every single element of the line. He is eating everything. Um, nobody told him to do this. Uh, this is this spontaneously arose. Um, you're quite right. I've forgotten about the Texan accent. Um, he's not the worst thing in the film. I say the worst thing in the film a is the script, um, and Andy McDowell is just just wallpaper paste. Yeah. Um, he brings the energy into the film. Um, they, I can't believe I'm going to say this. Um, they do a thing with their tongues. Yeah. Because they're trying to be snakes. There's a there's a running theme in the film that the two of them are sexually depraved with each other. Yes. We even get to see some slides later on. Yes, we do. In a rather amusing moment. But it's a very obvious amusing moment, folks, uh, which we'll get to. Um, Sandra Bernhardt is having to work hard to keep up with what Grant is doing. Um, and it helps that actually... Clearly, they they got on well behind the scenes. Um, so the, the casting wise, I think they lucked out there. I can't think of anybody else who would possibly um, bring this sort of stuff off. Um, I believe the plan originally was that the character would be uh, that the, the villain in the film would be male, and then they decided female, and then they decided to split the difference by, by making them a married couple. Mm. So. I was thinking about which sort of British actors. I mean, Hugh Laurie? Mm. Um, but even so, I don't think he'd reach what Grant does. Um, no. But it's almost a Kenneth Williams performance. You want someone Ken- of that calibre. Kenneth Williams? Yeah, if this was 10, 15 years previously, absolutely Kenneth Williams with maybe Joan Sims at a height or... Um, now, how about in the, sort of the late 60s when they're doing all the... because. Uh, in like Flint comes mm. up quite a bit. If they'd done another in the Flint film with Kenneth Williams as the villain, and he gets his big break in Hollywood <laughs> playing a Darwin Mayflower type, well, that's an alternate history I could live with. Well, he, Kenneth would have liked that. It would have been, he would have been able to get his mum out of that bloody flat and actually uh, enjoy some money and mm. probably um, uh, find a partner. Anyway, um, for some reason. The place blows up. Um, because there's a booby-trapped gavel. Yes, John Savadon brings the gavel down and the whole place blows up. And Bruce is half-inched by the Mario brothers because there are competing um, people trying to get after whatever it is. The Swarza. Yeah, we've yet to come across the real MacGuffin of the film. Yeah. But we know that um, the Mayflowers um, are after the Swarza and and the um, this uh, mafiosi 
um, wanted the um, auction house knocked off. And as we shall see, there are other elements. Andy McDowell clearly has an interest. And the chocolate bar eaters And there are well. chocolate bars eaters. And it's, it's like Silver Nemesis all over again. There's too many bloody elements, absolutely. It's the wonder the Cybermen aren't in it. Um, <laughs> excellent. You know what? If the Cybermen turned up halfway through the movie... It wouldn't. I wouldn't bat an eyelid. Actually, probably not. No. If, if if some metal man had stomped out of a cupboard, you would have gone. Oh yeah, that's just one of the heavies. Um, there's um, a bit of a business, a big chase scene uh, via an ambulance. Lots of syringes in some guy's face. Yeah. Which is um, fine. Um, Bruce is going Looney Tunes. Yeah. He 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 picks up a. He he grabs a cigarette that someone throws out of the window. And inhales it and says, oh, menthol, throws yes. it away. He throws the cash and it's, it goes straight into the bin of the toll gate. Yeah. All stuff that Kerry would do in his sleep, it has to be said. Um, I just don't think... This is the sort of thing maybe it's they the would have done from... It's the kind of thing I can see George Clooney doing in a Coen Brothers movie. Yes. Sort of frantically getting changed out of his pocket and throwing it. Yeah, and it goes close-up in. of Clooney, George's the, face going because away. Because he's happy to play the fool. Oh. He's confident enough to play the fool because... He's also a great actor and a great filmmaker and writer and director, and he can do all these things. So yeah, yeah, I'm happy to just, you know goof around and make and myself take look ridiculous. Out my image. Yeah. yeah, but Willis won't. Yes, there's just an element of um, trying too hard with this. Um, so uh, Bruce does a Moonraker and escapes on a, um, a on a gurney and comes to a halt um, in front of some new odd characters some of whom were at the auction. Um, and I can't believe, listener, that we're going to have to run this by you, but they're all named after famous cannibals. So there is indeed a character called Snickers, and there's one called Peppermint Pat, I think. Um, I don't and then think there's, so. Oh, yes, there is. There's definitely a peppermint in there. Um, and there's one called Butterfingers. I don't quite know why. It's, Butterf- it's Butterfinger, <coughs> Kit Kat, mm-hmm. Snickers... And Almond Joy. There is an Almond Joy, yes. I'm sure there's a peppermint in there somewhere. Maybe, I'll, maybe I've captured it with my screenshots. But um, I, I do think, I mean, literally the Snickers logo is bang on screen. Along, yeah. you know, So uh, this is completely up front, folks. Uh, and they've literally written it into the script. So I think it's a really, bit of a shameless um, piece of pro- and unsubtle product placement. And they all take turns to hit Eddie. Of course. And then their boss comes out, who's oh, Eddie's old enemy, acquaintance. He put him in prison. Boss. Some I don't know. handler, maybe. Um, um, who is... I'm the guy who tricked you into robbing the government installation and then had you sent to prison for it. That's as much as we get. But his name's George Kaplan. Otherwise known as James Coburn. But you are the prominence of his name, of course. George Kaplan. It's the name of the uh, it's the name of the fictitious spy in North by Northwest that everyone's after. Oh, oh, but but is actually part of a false flag operation by the CIA. That's an excellent piece of movie trivia. I didn't know that. And of course, the, I, I knew I knew that name from somewhere, but I wouldn't have put it in um, North. You're quite right. Is he? Is he? Um, no. Um, is he what? I was going to say, is he the one played by? No, he's not played by anybody. Know. He's a fictitious character within the film. This Hudson Hawk definitely wants to have a bit of North by Northwest yeah. um, caper aspect to it. James Coburn um, was apparently a bit starry, 
behind the scenes. Mm. Uh, and indeed, of course, someone like Richard E. Grant, who's a bit of a film buff, uh, was, was in awe of him. Coburn is a bit like your dad has been wandered onto stage and is mugging up for the camera. Yeah. Um, it, this is a cinema, a cinematic icon, although he's never really floated my boat. Um, it, it, he knows he's in a bit of trash and he knows he's in a massive ego driven enterprise, but he's getting lots of cash for it. Yeah. Um, <sighs> but he's angry about the new generation of the CIA. All these button pushers and data analysts and all that, and he misses the old days where it was all like a Roger Moore film. Yes, um, he has a line um, that makes you yearn for a simpler time, folks. Um, he says, "My employer wants a meeting." Hawk says, "Your employer," um, and then Hawk says, "The president," and uh, Kaplan says, "No, somebody powerful." Oh, it's satire. And I thought, hmm, that's ringing down the decades, isn't it? Anyway, for some reason, they knock Hawk out, um, even though uh, they, they're just asking, you know, come and have a meeting. Yes. And what they do, though, is they, they knock him out, and he falls backwards into a packing crate full of polystyrene. And when he wakes up, he's been shipped to Rome in a box. So, clearly by plane, or by some, something like that, um, he obviously would have died in transit. Or or wet wet himself. Yes, <laughs> um, but it's a comic transition, isn't it? It's um, you know, and um, I love it. Um, he goes to the window. Outside is the Colosseum. In walks the butler. What do you think the butler says? Welcome to Rome. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so for the thick people at the back, uh, yeah, this isn't France. It's not London. Yeah. And then, um, so uh, Bruce nips out and he gets dragged into a car. And um, just in case, again, we're totally thick, Richard E. Grant is sitting there and um, he decides to just say, baldly, I'm the villain. Yeah. Bless him. I mean, look at his shit-eating grin. It's, it's hilarious. He's, he's loving every moment of driving around in Beverly Hills. And, and, and now he's in Italy and he's sitting in a car, or at least we think he's sitting in a car with Bruce Willis. We don't quite know whether these shots were the same day. Um, and he's driving around the sites. Um, they, they do a suspicious lack of driving around the sites. There's, there's about one shot of them going through Rome. Yes. Um, and then it's all kind of into uh, the Mayflower set and Sandra Bernhardt singing The Power by Snap, which was huge at the time that um, couldn't be more 1990 no um, what other film um, famous director did that crop up in I think uh, Jeff Bridges Eyes Wide Shut <laughs> Eyes Wide Shut I don't Shut. know um, it's The Fisher King oh okay so uh, Jeff Bridges dances around to um, I've got the power um, it's a very very obvious time um, word and anyway um, Darwin and Minerva uh, compete with the other to go over the top. Um, uh, there are just endless lines from Grant. This might be hard to believe, but I'm just a regular Joe. Um, shouting world domination at the top of his voice. Yeah. It's, uh, it's fun for all the kids, really. It's just a pity that um, tied to the chair is Bruce Bloody Willis. Yeah, um, you, need, you need someone who can actually play against this. Yeah, that we really, really want to be on the side of. Yeah, and someone, whose wacky adventures someone, we want to see. Someone who he'd like. 
Mm. Someone who we wouldn't want to be immediately killed. No, you all just go, wakey, wakey, look, there's a burning skyscraper over there. Go and rescue the people in there. Come back and um, we'll have finished all the fun, wacky stuff. But, yeah, um, he has a slightly crass joke with the dog, which decides to bite him. Bite him on the, on the Bruce on the Willies. Bottom. Yeah. On the, on the balls. Um, yeah. And indeed, Bruce has a really horrible line, which I'm not going to quote. Um, they've, they've handcuffed him to a chair which implies that they're trying to coerce him to work for them. Um, but at no point um, has he said, no, I'm not going to do this. Um, it's because we need the hero tied to the chair. Yeah, he has to, he has to for some reason, be compelled to do this. Mm. But we're not given a reason why he would say no if they just asked. Precisely. I couldn't have put that Or just myself. offered him some money. Yeah. I mean, he might have been that character. We'll give you, what? half a million we're going to make all the, all the gold in, in the western world what, have a million to help us out and he would have gone yeah right no problem and then maybe his character develops somewhat and he decides hmm, maybe these people are really much worse than I am and I should not let them do this bad thing well I did think when I was enjoying the many riches of Hudson Hawk that they should flip the film that he should be primarily a crooner and instead of the burglary stuff, and he is coerced into performing the burglary. So his his prime attitude is not that he's the burglar, and right. he does a little bit of singing on the side. No, he's actually a stand-up showman, and he does all the singing in, in Rick's bar or something like that. And because of money woes, he gets involved in this great big crazy scheme. That would have made slightly more sense, and it would have allowed Bruce Willis to actually do his singing. Oh, you're still casting Bruce, Bruce Willis then? Well. I, or I was thinking you could have, like, Billy Joel... Well, anybody but but Bruce. Yeah. There is... We, we did... The, when they do some of the burglary scenes, do you think it's very Pink Panther? I've recently rewatched all the Pink Panther films as well, and I was struck by how unfunny most of them are. <laughs> so, yes, it is. <laughs> There's um, specific scenes of uh, night times on rooftops and grappling hooks. And oh, yes. at one point... Um, David Niven is specifically mentioned in this script. Yes, you're right. So they are aware that that's what they're trying to go for. They've got a fun burglar. They want him to be the pink, the panther, basically. Mm. Um, but they're never going to get up to those heights. I, I agree with you. I think the Pink Panther films, I love the first few, and then, boy, does it go off the rails. The, of, the, of the six mm. that I watched that have Sellers material in them, only a shot in the dark really stood out as really worth my time. The seventies ones are particularly gruesome. I like the um, I. Um, I think I've got I've got a lot of time for the seventies ones and a nostalgia appreciation for them. But the second Sellers dies and Blake Edwards starts milking the cash cow, it, oh, it's just absolutely painful. Trail of the Pink Panther oh, it's terrible. is just a mess. And it goes rapidly downhill after mm. that. With Curse of the Pink Panther, you get David Niven, who's so frail that his voice is dubbed by somebody else. You get a complete plank of wood as the new hilarious comedy lead, because Rowan Atkinson didn't want to do it. Mm. Is that the one Roger Moore's in? And you, at the end, you get Roger Moore as oh, Clouseau, no. and he's great. Mm. For his five minutes on screen. He gets he's banged on the head, doesn't he? He comes up on... He gets, no, he gets a, like a bucket stuck on his head. Oh, yeah. Again, it's someone who's incredibly charming and suave and debonair 
but is totally happy just making himself look ridiculous. Good old Roger. And doing a silly voice. And then in the 90s, you got Son of the Pink Panther with Roberto Benigni, yes. which, I think I mentioned before, I think Halliwell's film guide said, if you had to choose someone, he's perfect, but there is no need for this film mm. to be made. Mm. Absolutely. And then have you watched any of the Steve Martin stuff? I've seen the first one, which has two moments that are genuinely very funny mm-hmm. and are clearly bits that have been ad-libbed or mm. worked out by Steve Martin. And I haven't seen the second one. Yes. Um, I, uh, yeah, I dipped into the Steve Martin stuff. I do think Steve Martin is a, a, is a brilliant comic um, actor. Have you seen Bowfinger? Yes. Great film, though. That's his, his last great Basically film. Basically it is, isn't it? Yeah. And Eddie Murphy's last great um, film as well. He did a stage show recently with Martin Short. Oh, yes. Um, that is really good. It shows that he hasn't lost his touch with uh, acerbic uh, asides about Hollywood and money making and why we're doing the show and my supposed friend Martin Short <laughs> <laughs> it's you just think oh well, can't we have that Steve Martin back you know I know I know it's difficult for a comic actor these days to find a vehicle but even so what would be great is if he were to just do a comedy special and not yeah. necessarily doing you know reprising the wild and crazy guy but just him talking to the audience and being witty and talking about whatever he wants to talk about barely even stand up just him chatting because he's a naturally witty yes very intelligent yes he is very literate man and he, a musical he, with his banjo yeah he could do a couple of numbers in between he's uh, in grant's diaries grant um grant strikes up a great relationship with steve martin because of la's story yeah and he goes to martin's house and it's like an art gallery it's extraordinary you just get a sense of my god the moneyed um, side of Hollywood um, yeah uh, it, it's like something out of ancient Egypt apparently and you just think oh, Steve Martin in the middle of it all how did he remain sane but there um... so Grant is um, you know it, it's remarkable he stayed sane and he remained uncorrupted um, but of course he was married and he had a young child when he was making um, this Hudson yes. Hawk um, so he had that to keep him grounded and his background as well yes but he's he has this sort of peculiar heritage that he's a Swaziland of, stuff yes he was born and raised in Swaziland and is of Dutch and German ancestry his accent is entirely manufactured because that was how people talked in Swaziland because it was this weird relic of the British Empire and I think we mustn't underestimate the little voice in Richard E. Grant's head which is Bruce Robinson and it's constantly saying this is alright mate isn't it you yes. little mucker what are you doing here you little tosser the boil still there. <laughs> yeah. Yes, there's a wonderful moment in the um, the documentary on the With Nail DVD where they're interviewing Bruce Robinson, who nine, for ninety percent of the time he's slagging off Grant and you know taking the Mickey out of him. But then Robinson cracks, and he says he was he was brilliant in With Nail and I. I have to admit it, he was absolutely brilliant. And you just think actually this is such a British relationship. Where you two are slagging each other off, but actually you're like they, that. They clearly have huge affections yes, for each other. Yes. And they clearly worship they he yeah. Grant worships um, Robinson. Um, Robinson and, has and huge mutual. respect yes. for him as, as a performer. But as you say, it's that because they're such good friends, they can they can jab yes. at each other all the they're time. Play acting being the old couple. Yeah. yeah. But if someone were to criticise the other oh, you yes. say it's 
Yeah, big, I, big, I think not, my they're, friend. They're yeah. battling against each other, but they they team up against exterior influence. From Hudson Hawk like to Laurel, like Laurel and Hardy. Um, yes, indeed. Are you going to see the uh, uh, forthcoming biopic? I hopefully I'm going to see a preview of it. Oh, I'm, it's not a biopic. It's about their yes, their, 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 last, years, their last few years, which worries me. I hope it's not going to be a, a weepy. Um, From what I gather, it is very mm. explicitly a comedy. Um, but um, I expect great performances. Uh, John C. C. Riley has got had a Golden Globe nomination, mm. and I'm still to be sold on Steve Coogan as Stan Laurel, mm. just because his voice sounds too deep. Because mm. Coogan is clearly a lifelong smoker, and it shows. <laughs> and uh, it's a bit unfair, but Coogan his, knows. his head's the wrong shape. Uh, yeah, he appears to have lost a lot of weight for uh, the Stan Laurel role, and he does a good vocal impression of um, of Stan. He captures but... the way he speaks, but not the actual sound of his voice. But it's that's such a trick. I mean, it... I'll, I mean, after about five minutes, I'll probably just forget about it. Yes, you're key into it. I know Coogan knows um, what a mountain this is to climb and just how beloved Stan and Ollie are. Yes. I've been talking to my brother about this one because we are huge Stan and Ollie fans and um, we, we're apprehensive, I think is the word. Um, some of the recreations of the scenes that we've seen look delicious and good, but we shall see. Anyway, before we spent three hours talking about oh, yeah. the god Stan and Ollie... Back to uh, um, uh, Sandra Bernhardt. Oh yeah, um, whilst they're um, explaining what they want uh, Bruce to do next, they show some slides. And would you believe it, listener? In amongst the slides are sums they hadn't expected, and I, I, I can't believe I did this, but yes, I did. Oh great! Screenshot. Let's have a closer yeah. look. So we've got Grant in suspenders and. Bernhard whipping. I think this is um, all profoundly and, psychological. And the, um, and the butler's in there as well. The butler is there with a big grin on his face. Um, so, yeah, God bless them for doing that. It's it's the oldest joke in the book. Um, and uh, it seems to work on Bruce because he's told to rob the Vatican and get Da Vinci's notebooks uh, out there, this codex, which is apparently MacGuffin number two for this film. Yeah. Um, and he's going to be chaperoned by the two uh, agents that he calls Ig and Uk. Yes. Now, I um, instantly googled Ig and Uk, and um, did you did you know who they were, or had you come across them before? Or? The actors? No, no. Or, the the or, characters of Ig and Uk. Well, I, why I, is he calling? Why is he suddenly saying to two heavies? What do they call it's, you guys, Iganuk? I, it, I expect it's a reference to a cartoon. So most of the references on Google are um, it's a line in um, Hudson Hawk, and the other one is apparently Iganuk is a three-panel gag strip from The Dandy, revolving around the lives and times of two cavemen. How does Bruce Willis know? I would say that has to be coincidence. Very odd. Well, what's even more of a coincidence is that they look very similar, or at least they're playing a similar sort of role to the two heavies that appear in The Matrix Reloaded, which is another Joel Silver thing. Those two oh, yes, the, the two uh, the dreadlocks, the blonde the dreadlocks. two sword-fighting twins. Yes. Um, again, a coincidence. 
Um, and Bruce decides to go on a tour of the Vatican, which he can't believe that he's robbing. And um, in fact, he can't believe it so much. Um, Tom Cruise did it in Mission Impossible 3. Oh, yeah, so he did. Um, and, well... It, Bruce tests the alarm system, but there's a child smashing a toy because he's a horrible little twat. Yeah, it's a surreal moment. He enters this room, which is supposed to be the sort of the vaults where the codex has been kept, goes down the steps, and there's this girl freaking out, smashing this toy umbrella against the steps. And all we get is Bruce's shocked look on his face, as if, what the the hell? (laughs) Um, There's no explanation. Um, And indeed, I thought that's just really weird and it should have been cut out. But in fact, she reappears in a moment. Um, um, Her mother has a line. She drags the kid away and says, um, you're bringing shame to your country. Oh, yeah. So, what? I thought that was funny. What's, what's going on? It's... Because she's American and she's misbehaving in a foreign country. And uh, if you've travelled as much as I have, then um, eventually you're sort of told, you know, what we're, we're ambassadors oh, right. here. So, you know, behave properly. What I quite like was that Bruce gives the little girl the same look that he gives the gimp in pub fiction <laughs> that look of total incomprehension I can't believe what I'm looking at anyway um, in a, a moment of great coincidence on a, and on a par with um, Roger Moore running into um, Lois Childs in, in Rio in Moonraker guess who's there none other than um, Andy McDowell oh wow <sighs> of all the places yeah um, yeah the plot requires her to, to be there um, she's doing the tour guide routine because she's a woman uh, and not a professional. Um, and I don't quite know what an auctioneer is doing giving tours in the Vatican, but there you go. Um, and uh, the alarm gets triggered by the little girl with her umbrella. And um, But it's it's actually Bruce. He's testing it out. Really? Yeah. I didn't get it. I thought the little girl just lost control of the elephant and it flew up into the... Um, no, no, the, the way, alarm system. No, the way I read it is Bruce is testing it out. Oh, that's that's more intelligence than I credited him for. Um, anyway, uh, he um, disappears he with flee- Andy, and they flee onto the London Mail train. It does look suspiciously British. It well, it, that's because it is. All right, yeah, that's where they filmed it. Um, and I thought, oh, that's quite an interesting development. I like uh, Mysterious Underground Railways. I'm all for that. Um, I didn't like the crucifix that lights up. I loved so. that. I, that, was, that was the part of the film Blasphemy. that I really laughed at. It, it, it lights up and flashes, report upstairs at once. Yes, sir. Yeah, I mean, that'd be great in a Monty Python film, but this film doesn't have the comic chops to include something that witty. It's a great joke that's really out of place among yes. all the other terrible jokes. Absolutely. Um, the underground, by the way, will be used again by this film, but unfortunately not in a particularly fantastic way. Um, and it turns out that Annie um, is talking to the uh, military wing of the Vatican um, uh, about uh, a potential robbery. So now we've not only got the mafia involved in this, and potentially uh, the CIA, also the Mayflowers, and the Vatican. And the Cybermen. And the Cybermen, or the Cybernauts, if uh, the Avengers had anything to do with it. Um, And we've got a script which comes out with a line like this. Pick up the phone, you reindeer goat cheese eating bastard. Now, I don't even know what that means. 
where's this person supposed to be from? I've got no, what Earth, I think. Hmm. He's ringing Tommy and he's uh, rocking out um, uh, an insult as usual. Is Tommy supposed to be from Finland? No idea. What is a reindeer goat? <laughs> and do do reindeer goats eat? cheese or no it's it's you eating the cheese from the reindeer goat. oh of course the che- but anyway um bruce is is making a mistake because in a moment of total ineptness ineptitude um, we are shown that tommy um is actually sleeping with the enemy yeah and is is in thick with the mayflowers no suspense there he's in like flint he <laughs> lucky old flint um he indeed james Curvin uh turns up uh, got to do something for the money. A mime artist appears behind Bruce um, and does some funny stuff. He's mimicking Bruce Willis's he gestures is. all the way yes. through, which again, that's quite funny. Yes, that's a quite nice in a movie. better film, yes. and it ends with Bruce elbowing him in the face. I concede that the reason I think this this film does belong in cinema limbo is I think there are some funny bits in this line. It's a total mess, yeah, but um, there are funny moments. Um, not, it's, not a terrible it's, the, it's the bits that clearly couldn't have been ad-libbed on the day mm. like the like the, the talking cross like the the whole mime dress up they have to pre-plan that yes something where thought has been involved um, tends to work better than uh, being whooshed up and you know what the uh, main script writer of this you know what his next film was um, uh, Remains of the Day Batman Returns. Really? Daniel Waters. Hmm. The big hit of 1992. Which has got too many elements in it. Well, as you know, Batman Returns has been in cinema limbo. Indeed, quite right It's my favourite Batman film. I agree. I I think it's terrific. It's got an amazing opening, that film. Um, But it's got too many elements in it. I don't think so. Matt Shrek, the Penguin. Batman is hardly in it. Bruce Willis is crucial to uh, Bruce Willis. Well, <laughs> Bruce Wayne, Bruce Wayne is crucial to it because yes, um, the the Bruce Wayne Batman dichotomy is meant as a reflection in the Catwoman Selina Kyle dichotomy, and their relationship with their alter egos is the core of the whole film. I I completely agree. In the same way, it's the public and private faces of um, the Penguin and Max Shrek. They're they're meant to be. The public and private faces of the same character. I, I'm not going to argue with you about Batman Returns. I think it's an excellent film. Um, Watch it this Christmas, listener. It's Jan- it is a Christmas film. It's, Jan- it's January now, apparently, but uh, yes, watched it anyway. Christmas 2019. Should civilization survive that long? Um, there is, one of the quirks of the um, uh, the heavies in this is that they don't speak; they just hand um, hand you a card. I think Kit Kat is uh, Kit Kat's the only one who does that. The others all actually speak. Yeah. Um, and he says something along the lines of "Beware the blue wire," which I've got no idea what that means. No, neither do I. Um, I again, it's a joke that I like, and it's something that they had to prepare beforehand. That he pulls out these cards that are always extremely specific, and it gets incredibly specific towards the end. Bruce also says something, I think, to the mime artist. He says something like, good yogi. Um, which I fail, Again, cartoons. fail to. Possibly. Yogi Bear, possibly. Um, yeah, because he's doing it in Boo Boo's voice. Good yogi. Yes, that's right. 
laugh a minute and Hudson Hawk yeah so um, he breaks into the Vatican and that involves a trip in a box on the train and that's it and then he walks in yeah because he posts himself there which is hilarious Um, one another joke I liked um, that the uh, Italian security guards take with them to work a thermos full of pasta yes which which I thought was uh, a total stereotype, um, but actually rather but it, amusing. But it's so goofy. It is, it's, yeah. It's hard to take seriously. Yeah. I liked it. Um, and there's business with the fishing rods and the security. Uh, uh, Hawk gets the codex, heads off across the roof, messes up the Pope's um, reception on his TV. Oh, um, yeah. Which uh, the Pope uses his mitre to uh, try to correct which, of course, um, would happen in real life. Um, and there's there are some switches here where he jumps onto a street lamp and then straight into the date with Andy McDowell, Yeah, which I thought Spielberg would do better. If you think of Tintin, and there's a great big chase scene in the middle of Tintin. That is the best use of 3D I've seen in a mainstream film. I didn't see that. Except... Gravity, which works all the way through because Alfonso Cuaron is a brilliant director who knows how to do this sort mm. of thing. But in, in Tintin, that whole chase scene is done as a single continuous shot. Mm. And because it's presented in 3D, you get an absolute sense of movement through space because it's slow camera movement, mm. no edits, and it replicates the way the human eye sees the world. So it tricks you into thinking that it's real, and that's why it works. And you saw it in, in 3D? Yeah, it was before I gave up completely wow, on 3D films. Wow, yeah, because you, know, you usually veto that. I can't remember when I saw Tintin. I remember seeing Tintin is a really... It's so near and yet so far. Um, that scene, though, is pure Spielberg. Yes. And the escalating jeopardy, the, the one thing, the domino effect of all of that. It's master director. And, and I know you don't like Ready Player One, but there is some of that in... Um, in the chase scene in Ready Player One. Ready, pla- Ready Player One can do one. <laughs> Ready Player do one. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not go there. Um, yeah, so he, he basically does the robbery, uh, the, gets the codex, and jumps straight into the date with Andy McDowell, um, who has a secret. Um, God knows what this secret's going to be, except that she doesn't kiss. Um, and Bruce says, um, I if I don't make love every ten years, I get a little cranky. He also does the, the hilarious thing of an American ordering a delicious meal from a restaurant and then ketchup. I'd forgotten that, yes. Which is what European Vacation did six years earlier, where they go to all the effort of learning what burger and fries is in, in French. And as the, the French way of saying, oh yes, yes, the American sandwich. And for your ugly children? <laughs> and isn't that the bit where the waiter comes up with the ketchup bottle and offers it like a bottle of wine? Yeah. How do they come up with this stuff, honestly? Um, Andy McDowell says, I seem to have a thing for sinners. There are a couple of lines in this film uh, which are clearly trailer bait. Um, and, you know, it's it's Bruce flashing his shit-eating grin and saying something. So anyway, Andy's not entirely happy that Bruce has stolen the codex for some reason. Um, and then it cuts to outside the flat that they've moved to for their ooh-la-la. Outside are sitting the... Oh yes, yeah, so you know what I'm going to say. Yeah, um, I was sitting the, um, the the chocolate bar people yes. and Butterfingers. He says, "You want me to rape him?" Exactly. Comes out of nowhere, um, and I thought I'd misheard this at first. Um, 
but that was the 1990s. And then you only wished you had. Yeah. It's so strange. Yeah. It's it's just... It's difficult to process, because you think, do you realise what film you're in? Bruce Willis has had a great idea for your dialogue in this scene. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You'll never work again after this film, but don't worry. He Um, went on to play... Leatherface in the remake of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So it's only up from Hudson Hawk. That's good to know. Yeah, all the films he's done since then have involved him covering his face mm, in shame. He's done a, he's done a few things that actor. Um, he does a um, reading the book to yourself thing, um, which is done in many comedy films. You know, read this, and he starts reading aloud. But the fact that he's reading a, a book like Spot Finds. Yes, I think it's a Doctor Zeus or something like that yeah. that they give him. I was going to Google the line. Inside the flat, um, Bruce quotes Casablanca with his looking at you. Um, gets doped by Andy. Um, again, he doesn't get to drink that coffee because it's not coffee. Um, and you might be wondering where the hell Grant and um, uh, Sandra Bernhardt are. They've disappeared from the film uh, at this stage. Yes. Um, more business with um, Coburn, um, who suddenly is a connection to Andy McDowell and um, and the Mayflowers. Um, and Andy is talking to James Coburn in some secret redoubt with artwork and all of this. And um, Kit Kat is standing there. Do you remember anything odd? Yes. He's in drag, dressed as He's Andy dressed McDowell. He's dressed as Andy McDowell. What the hell? There's no payoff to this. He's just always ready to blend in with any surroundings, I think. But the same way that he's dressed All like... people. He's dressed like Eddie when, the, when they're in the square, and he's mimicking him, and now he's dressed like Andy McDowell. He ends up dressed as a statue. Yeah. It's a really odd moment, <laughs> and it's coming off, off, off the back of a rape joke. Um, you just think, ah, very, very odd. Um, so there's all lots of crossing and double crossing going on. Yeah, there's multiple parties at work, and it's and that's what's confusing things. There's also a rather expressionistic shot of Andy McDowell who goes to confession. Yeah, um, which is clearly for the trailer, and is um, is a close up for a reason. Because um, when she walks out, would you believe it? She's, She's actually a nun. a nun. Now I don't know about you. I never saw that coming. Um, I have to say it's quite good casting, therefore, because I don't find her um, much of a Sex bomb. Um, but did you recognise? Did you recognise the actor who played the cardinal? Um, I do. I can't know. I don't know. I can't remember his name. I'm sure I've seen him in hundreds of things before. You're going to Leonardo Cimino, who plays Baron Harkonnen's doctor in Dune. Oh God, that's really painful. And I can see him now for reasons, of course, listener, that may be clear. He looks like Murray Velvin. Hasn't he been in Who? Murray Melvin. No, no. He was in. T- Murray, Murray Melvin was in Torchwood. Oh right. Okay. He was Billis Manger, the mysterious, creepy old man. Mm, that's Torchwood. Yeah. Anyway, Andy McDowell sticks on some sunglasses. Um. And uh, heads back. Um. We get a David Niven quote. Uh, oh yeah, we switch back to um, Richard E. Grant. He's playing tennis in uh, some underground Vatican vault. Um. And then things start getting really crazy. Yes, it turns out that they read about alchemy in an airline magazine. Yeah, because they are meant to be Philistines. That's the big, big joke. Um, And um, Sandra Bernhard gets, shall we say, a little trigger happy. 
because plot-wise, the film no longer has any use for um, the two heavies, Egan Uck, that have been following Bruce around. Yeah. So again, out of nowhere, she shoots them dead. Um, even Richard E. Grant is shocked. He says, God, I thought I was just joking. Um, and then he starts dancing with Minerva and prancing around like... Um, um, that particularly, the shot of Richard E. Grant and Minerva, it's like something out of a 1920s um, Bright Young Things. Oh, Reefer um, Madness. Yes, indeed. Um, they're, they're talent-wise. They're, they're, they're hooked on the on the reefers. James Kerbin doesn't look impressed. James Kerbin's wondering when he can go home. Yeah, he's thinking, I really want to be next to... I want my round of golf. Um... Okay, so um, they need him for the final job, apparently. Yes. There's one last job that uh, Minerva and um, Darwin need Hawk to carry out. Hawk comes out with another great line. Look, you Eddie Munster-looking melon farmer. I use that line a lot. Mm. <laughs> oh, the joys of Hudson Hawk. Here comes the Mussolini uh, um, headquarters. Anthony, I can feel myself dying on the inside. <laughs> Hang in there, Jeremy. Hang in there. We have journeyed through. Um, we've journeyed through French cinema together. It was a horrible mistake. Hudson Hawk. Yeah. When you're Olivier. I wish I was somewhere else. This <laughs> is awful. Let's get to the good lines at the end, though, because it's it's uh, saved the best for the last, really. Um, Sandra Bernhardt says, "Oh no, actually, it's Richard E. Grant who says in the Ultra you've got lead that won't get you gelato." He, they've stopped talking English, basically. Um, but there's another um, robbery that they need um, Bruce to carry out. Um, they reveal their plans is basically to turn lead into gold, thanks and, to the and, and make lots of money and crash the markets because they're very evil. Yes, and Richard E. Grant gets really sweary. Um, I'm not going to say this uh, for the, the children in the audience, but basically, it's a scene where he's just f word, f word, f word. Naughty with now. Um, you mean with who called his own uncle a cunt? Well, it was that. I don't think Monty really deserved that. Apart from, then comes a scene with um, someone that Hudson hadn't been expecting, which was um, the sudden reappearance of Tommy. Yeah, because double cross, I think. And for some reason, um, Tommy's playing it straight. Yeah. He's being serious. The only lore I cared for was friendship, and I broke that one too, didn't I? I, It's like, what film have you suddenly decided to be in? My brain has checked out long ago. (laughs) Well, they decide to do a little scam with a a pistol and some blanks and break out of the, the Mayflower building over the balcony. Over the balcony, and they're fine. Yes, they just roll around on the steps below... Um, they, oh yes, and Tommy is um, visibly injured. He's got blood all over him. Yeah. Um, because, well, we're about to find out. Um, the Mayflowers, um, despite the fact that Bruce Willis is now hightailing it away, don't seem concerned by this. Um, they're just looking at each other askance and saying, we might need another plan. Uh, Tommy is, uh, and, and uh, Hudson appear to be kidnapped by the Vatican and um, but Tommy's actually working with Anna that's unbelievable twisteroo and do you think you and I know Hudson Hawk better than any other person on the planet at the moment god I don't want that on my gravestone 
And um, yeah, so uh, they um, basically we're, we're losing the will to live here, aren't we? It, the Louvre is robbed. Oh, I know what happens next. Of and course, and they, they've got the, they've got a bazooka that fires sticky bombs, and they're paralysed with curare. Well, yes, I uh, the curare thing really needs someone like Rowan Atkinson to do. If you're going to paralyse anybody and have them acting uh, amusingly, don't have Bruce Willis and Andy McDowell. And here's the screenshot of them attempting to kiss each yeah. other whilst paralysed. And they, and they put um, Eddie and Tommy in hilarious gay poses because it's hilarious. And then there's a bomb. And there's, and there's bombs and... There is. They managed to unparalyze themselves from something enough so that um, Snickers shoots himself in the head with one, and Bruce does the reverse firing um, of a of a mouth a blowpipe on Arm yes. and Joy. Um, and Butter, then... Butterfingers, I don't know, he's, he's off raping somebody. Oh no, he comes back later. I've taken oh yes, so he, does. he has an actually rather amusing final line. Um, but yeah, one guy gets a bomb in the head. Uh, because here at this stage we're in pure cartoon land. Yeah, um, reality has long since evaporated. It absolutely has. No one, any, anything can happen now, so no one cares. The yeah. audi- the audience is actively fleeing the theatre. <laughs> they're packing. They're going home and packing their bags to run away as far as they can. I think if anybody any saw this in the first film. weekend, they word of mouth would have been um, poor. Not the film that they were expecting, to say the least. Andy McDowell is McDowell-napped and appears to have smoked something. She starts talking like a dolphin, rather well, actually. And in my opinion, I think she did the dolphin impression off the set and they went, oh, we've got to have that in the film. Well, of course. I mean, why have a script when you could just make up a load of random shite? Yes, and this really is random um, because she was only stuck with Curare, the, the, the paralysing agent. She's, why is she suddenly tripping out? Yeah. Um, Bernhardt's dresses get progressively more ostentatious. Um, she starts looking like Servalan with a nice little headdress. And you'll be pleased to hear we're actually coming up to the great big um, uh, finale of the film. Oh, thank God. Which is, of course, uh, Hudson and Tommy have got to spring um, Sister Anna out of the clutches of the Mayflowers. And also uh, get the bits of the... Uh... Get Da Vinci's bits. There's also the bit where, because uh, one of the pieces of the jewel crystal thing from, that makes the machine work is stored inside a book, and they cut open the mm. inside cover and they pull out this large object yeah. from a very thin space. That's only one of Da Vinci's diaries for crying out loud. Also, how do we fit an object the size of, uh, let's say, a, a small melon... Inside the cover of a book. Film logic. It's not logic. It's Hudson Hawk logic, what there is of it. So they're inside a big castle. Um, think f- the end of Your Eyes Only, basically. Big castle. Oh, you mean a good film? A good film. God, I'd love to be watching Fior for, for Your Eyes Only. Um, anyway, you've got... Uh... They sing a song. They, they, there's a bit where they're hanging off the battlements and saying, hey... How do I look? Oh, yes, they do, so, yeah. Get on with it! Andy McDowell says, I'm not a very good damsel in a dress, am I? <laughs> Jesus Christ. Wow. You need, a, you need a, a comic writer and a comic actress. 
Uh, Kit Kat, the uh, aforementioned um, cross-dresser, is now dressed... um, as like, a statue, like t- um, um, uh, not Teehee. Um, in Live and Let Die, um, Whisper. No. Who does um, Herge? What's his name? Not Live and Let Die. The man with the golden gun. Yes, thank you. Knickknack. Yes. Knickknack. In the in the uh, garden of statues, he's dressed up as a statue. I got talking to someone the other day, and they confused Fantasy Island with Love Island, and they got very confused about the wow. new series on ITV. Well, that would be... That was pretty funny. (laughs) Where's the little waiter serving drinks? Um, Yes, so Kit Kat is going to buy the farm, and his final little message to Andy McDowell is, I always liked you. Which isn't meant to endear us to him, but frankly, he did nothing for me. Um, The show tunes, up until this point, have been conspicuous by their absence. No, but it's time to bring them back, because let's have a film that takes the plot from A to Z with nothing in the middle. Hmm. We've, we've forgot the USP of our main character. We're having so much fun that actually he, he does need to time stuff according to show tunes. And to cut a long story short, um, basically they breach the castle. Um, I do like um, Butterfinger's final line. He gets um, multiple arrows in him, thanks to Minerva. Staggers out of the door, runs into James Coburn and goes, Hey coach, looks bad. I did find that funny. That <laughs> uh, was quite well played uh, for a, a knuckle dragon. Um, also, Sandra Bernhardt gets a good line. He sa- she says, if you see the big guy, tell him he's a loser, which I quite liked, mm. said to a nun. Suddenly they kept all the zingers for the end. That's the line that sparks fire in Andy McDowell. Don't you dare insult God. So she absolutely whacks Sandra Bernhardt. In this Bernhard. film, this is nothing more than... A worship of the golden uh, calf of money. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, so she manages to dash out with the codex. Um, Bruce Willis says, What do you say now, you centrally intelligent scumsicle? Oh, Amazing. Just, oh, it just leaps off the page, doesn't it? Amazing. How did they... Well... Um, and Bruce goes up against James Coburn in a, a scene which would not be out of place in The Mask... Um, with his backwards flipping backwards and God, forwards, and it's just it's agony. It, it causes me physical pain. You thought it was this film, yeah, and I regret it now. You I mean, me. you I try and I try and approach these films with an open mind and reevaluate them, but some of them are just so fucking terrible. I think this film is daft and a mess. I don't think it's. Uh, I've, I've seen much worse films. It's. Um, I think obsessed is, with money. I think this is the worst film I've ever covered on this on podcast. On Cinema Limbo? Yeah. Oh boy. And I would rank it below Manos, The Hands of Fate. Oh boy. Well, because that um, is at least entertaining. I'm not going to argue with you. I do think this is... Um, there's a reason this film's been a, a forgotten piece of 90s. There are people who reevaluate it who say, oh no, it's actually pretty good. No. No, they no. are wrong. No, I'd say it's... Um, I, I find I'd find uh, a lot of Adam Sandler's output objectionably bad, um, racist, sexist, all the ists, basically. Mm. Um, this is just um, a classic piece of um, um, Hollywood ego, grandstanding nonsense, money making. It's just it's so unfunny. It's made by someone who thinks they're hilarious and is indulging what they think is hilarious, but it's desperately unfunny a total dearth of interesting and original ideas 
And it has no soul. It has no soul. It has no coherence. Mm. It's just a monumental insult to but anyone who wants to watch a decent piece of work. I don't think this film torched um, Willis's career for UK audiences. I think what torched it was the um, uh, the interview he did with Aspel and um, Schwarzenegger and Stallone, which I think you can see on YouTube when they came to promote Planet Hollywood a couple of years later. Yeah, which was. Um, it was all over the press that people were complaining this was a blatant piece of PR. Yeah. Um, and they were unbelievably smug on that. And the the moment where Aspel reads the menu back at them, and particularly at, at Schwarzenegger, and says, is that actually a, a balanced diet? And Schwarzenegger, the politician, starts to justify it and goes, well, actually, if you do this, that, and the other. And they, they'll go. You can see Willis just shriveling. That's the moment which torched particularly Willis in the UK I remember watching that with my parents and, and we were just going what this is terrible mm. um, Stallone I agree with you um, very talented guy um, it's yeah his career kind of went all over the place by the mm, 90s a survivor that guy yeah I mean there's Demolition Man which I think is a lot I better like than people Demolition I Man. think it's better than people say but by the end of the decade he was doing stuff that was going straight to video he was mm. the remake of Get Carter which is mm-hmm. dreadful mm-hmm. And Stop or my mom will shoot. Cobra. Cobra um, was mid eighties. All right. And so then, that's that was that was when he was peak, and that was just a misfire when he was being successful. I think when he he's been on a renaissance for about the last ten years, I'd say. Um, it was so it then, was it was Rocky Balboa that turned it around in yes. two thousand six. Yeah. Because that was so much better than anyone could have expected. And he embraced his past. I mean, I know Commode is down on Stallone and said he's, that he's prepared to play his age and he's prepared mm. to play physically vulnerable in Creed um, he Rocky's diagnosed with cancer mm-hmm. and he's going through chemotherapy and the, he ends the film in remission and recovering but physically still very frail mm. and Stallone is very happy to play that because it's justified by the material and it's good writing and as I said he, he just gave up control of it for Creed and said yeah we want you to play weak and vulnerable we yes. want you to play your age Okay. We're going to take your Rocky theme and play it when our character has his big moment of affirmation. When you've given him the pep talk in the ring, Michael B. Jordan gets up, bang, we're going to play the theme. And that's amazing, because that's that's a big personal thing for, for Stallone. Yeah. Um, and that's a classic piece of movie, movie music. Um, have you watched any of the... Um, I think they're on the box set of um, the Rocky CDs. I uh, know, I watched them taped on TV. Oh, okay. <laughs> Um, on the, the Rocky 1-5 to five box set, um, Stallone introduces it, and um, I was struck by how humble he is and, and how much he was saying, this is such an important character for me. These are films that I love. Um, the Rocky films are the story of his life. Pretty much, yeah. That his, his wife's... His, his, you know, his, the, the million-to-one shot of mm. the first film. He was an unknown nobody. Yes. Who gets an Oscar, two Oscar nominations for his debut picture, mm. and is catapulted to stardom? And he could have sold the script, but he refused because mm. he wants to play the lead. That's them. And Rocky Two and Rocky Three are him gaining success and trying to deal with it, and maybe not succeeding, but you know having that core self belief, you know the love of a good woman. Yes. Rocky Four, where he's getting too big for his boots, he's getting very 
big-headed about everything and it needs to be brought back down to earth. Yes. And Rocky V is him going back to his roots, directed by the director of the first film, of understanding and appreciating what he has, what he's lost. Yes. Being more self-aware. I think Rocky V is quite underrated. And then mm. we jump forward to Rocky Balboa and now the Creed films, where it's him looking back on his past understanding and appreciating his legacy and also handing it on handing it on to the next generation yes. and just stepping away and saying it's yours now yes he's doing with rocky what george lucas did with star wars who knows, where it, <laughs> who knows where it will lead and he's and he said mm. that it's very likely there'll be a third creed film because the second one's been a huge hit mm. uh, stallone said that he is retiring from mm. playing rocky mm. that rocky hit the character rocky his story has now reached an ending. And it's now for Michael B. Jordan yes. and Ryan Cougar and, and whichever creator. Because that film, Creed, that has story. been really embraced by the particularly the black community and uh, as, a, as a real sort of... And, and also, Michael B. Jordan is such a beloved figure as well. Um, Which is weird, because he's made some really not great... Well, he was wasn't in, he in Fantastic he Four. He was in Fantastic Four, mm. and he was arguably probably the best of the four in it. But he was in he was in Black Panther, mm. which was gigantic. I wasn't crazy about, but I thought it was pretty good. Um, Fruitvale Station, which was hugely acclaimed. Mm. He's kind of Ryan Coogler's actor. Mm-hmm. So that those two like Scorsese and De Niro. So whatever it is that Coogler's doing next, he'll he'll have Jordan on board. And who knows? Maybe Bruce Willis. Bruce, um... nice. I actually <laughs> Jordan was on the Graham Norton show last week. Really? Yeah. All right. And it was, it was him and Dawn French. Oh my god! <laughs> and it was actually he was he he was selling the movie, but he didn't really need to sell it that hard because it kind of sells yeah. itself. But he was very relaxed and charming and happy to sort of just chuckle at himself a little. And he did a little bit where Dawn French throws a punch at him, and they do the soundtrack, and he has to pretend he's been knocked out. And it was all sort of really kind of light. Oh, yeah, this guy's really charming. He's really mm. got something there. Yes, it's not just the the pecs; it's the charm. Yeah, um, and it's how he presents himself in public these days, which is very important. He, ha- he has a warmth in the personality, mm. and yet he can play the villain in Black Panther. Yes, indeed, the one Marvel villain who's really well rounded with a really a good reason, well for, um, well argued motivation, yes. and make it work. So I think. This guy can't do. Where's he going next? I bet he ends up in a bloody Star Wars film. Uh, Hudson yeah. Hawk too. But he, yeah, if he did Star Wars, he'd have a major role, and that would be fine. Yeah, but they said that about Gwendolyn Christie. Yes, yeah, so you're going who? Yeah, well, bloody Captain. Well, anyway, Captain let's not, let's not Let's not talk about Captain Bloody Plasma. Let's talk about James Coburn going my pension. Let's let's try and, <laughs> let's try and get this over with. Yes, let's bring this to a conclusion because I think maybe we've we've said more than a lot of people would say about Hudson Hawk. We've been talking for longer than the film. Than the film itself, that's that's really silly. Well, anyway, the zingers are kept till the end. Um, Andy's got the codex. James Coburn uh, does a karate kick off the side of the uh, the castle. Screams, my pension. Oh no, that's when he goes over the cliff in the limousine in with, the car. With, the with car, Tommy, with Tommy in the back, and it explodes in midair. Mm. And there's apparently uh, in that scene, Coburn has a picture of a dog stuck to his face, and that's supposed to be Eddie's dog that that Coburn killed, and that's why Eddie wants revenge. But that was all cut out. Oh god! 
So that doesn't make any sense. Because if Tommy had actually been killed in that explosion, tonally, that would have been really weird for this, this film. Well, it w- he would have been Tommy Two-Tone, wouldn't he? Would have been Tommy, it's actually Tommy, Tommy Five-Tone. Tommy Two-Dead. I don't know, because he's got a complicated doorbell. When Tommy goes off that in a fireball and the car explodes, Bruce Willis actually um, bursts to life. He screams dead at uh, Richard E. Grant, which is really nice. Um, drop kicks him, um, and then suddenly we're back into a set that we saw right at the start of the film. Because, um, like all good classic uh, tales, this has a degree of circularity, and um, mm. so we're back in the set that they paid absolutely loads for. Um, did you get any young Sherlock Holmes vibes from this film? No, because I enjoy young well, Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> obviously, the, yeah, there there is the certain sort of uh, steampunk yeah. element to it, and the aircraft, the little. Oh yes, um, I forgot about that. Um, but um, yeah, it's a nice there's, practical there's, set, but there's it's completely some superficial connections. Well. Yeah, filmed in um, Romania or, or above, uh, somewhere in Eastern Europe, where there was nothing else to do, and there was and, baking hot, and apparently it was baking hot, and mm. Grant and Bernhardt were going stir crazy. Mm. They really did. Um, that's documented in detail in his diaries yeah. on this, folks, if you want to track it down. And st- and f- they decide that they need to make Eddie put together the crystal out of the bits, that he has to do it for some reason. As if he's the brains of the operation, yes. And um, so he, he kind of puts it together and hands it over and says to Andy McDowell, oh, what would happen if, I left, if I'd left this little bit out? Well, it, well, well let's find out, because it's going to go bad. And then they set it off and it explodes and it sprays um, it sprays gold all over Minerva all gets over. turned to gold uh, I don't, and Darwin gets electrocuted and knocked down yes um, and um, then the butler comes in the butler comes in and they have a fight and he gets his arm stuck behind the door and he falls and it cuts his own head off and they say hey you're not going to be able to go to that hat convention in July which is probably the one line that gets if it ever gets any requotations is the one that's on IMDB it's because it's the James Bond line shocking it's, but it's yeah. also too long yes it is it doesn't work as a it doesn't work as a funny funny line because it's too long it doesn't resemble a joke that's true Bre- um, um, brevity Brevity is the soul uh, of wit. wit. And unfortunately, this film is way too verbose and is not starring actors that can deliver that. Uh, if, I mean, look at the verbosity of Blackadder. Um, the love of language in that. Yeah. That could, they, could, they could do it, but unfortunately not. Oh, yes, of course, we get... Um, the dog jokes out of the We window. get the dog joke. Oh, yes, they shoot the dog... They... Oh, I did like because this. Earlier, because <laughs> earlier on, because he, when he was playing tennis, there was the, they have a thing that fires tennis balls. And they do that by saying, oh... Ball, ball, and they fire the tennis ball thing at him, and it just it just somersaults out of the window. Yes, and we get a fantastic long shot of the dog um, literally um, roly polying out of the window, um, <laughs> which I thought was nicely cruel. Could have done with a bit more of that. Um, they make their escape, Andy and uh, and Bruce on um, on the flying machine on a, on Leo's um, flying, machine, which uh, works by the way. As as the whole place explodes, yes. and they land in a nearby village. They land amid ordinary people. Yeah, because Bruce is man of the people. So um, we're in a real location. Suddenly, we're away from Richard E. Grant and Sandra Bernhardt and all those silly rich people with their affectations and strange depravities. Um, and what we need is a good old mate to show up at the end. Um, and who should appear 
but on a Danny, donkey. On a donkey, but Danny Aiello with some little burnt cork marks on his face. His bouffant is immaculate. It is. Fresh from dry cleaners. And what does he say? He says, can you fucking believe it? That's his running line through the movie. And that is, in fact, the reaction of pretty much everyone who watches because, this movie. Because there were airbags inside and there was a sprinkler system. And this and, is business and, drummed up on set. Yeah. It's in, in Grant's diaries. And it's, it's the most insultingly lazy <laughs> crap you can possibly think of. Because he's apparently indestructible. Um, and we get Andy saying, drink your cappuccino. Tommy says, drink your coffee. And what we get are two photos of Bruce Willis, which make you want to punch him. Yes. It's, it's, it's smirk overdrive at this it point. It really is. It's, I've got paid for this. And um, thanks, folks, for your money. Don't you wish you were as cool as me? And um, and um, would you like to buy the soundtrack album? Because apparently I can sing. And that really is... Um, and it even ends badly, because it goes back to the storybook. And then there's a bit of redundant narration. And he gets credited at the end. There's a song over the end credits that he sings about his own character. I hate this movie. He I hate. Be I hate Bruce Willis. <laughs> I hate you, and I hate myself. Well, that's Hudson Hawk for you, folks. Um, I can't say that's a resounding endorsement. The line I wrote at the bottom of my notes for showed Anthony earlier is simply, "It stinks." <laughs> As we noted, there are some funny bits. There are. Here and there. There are. And there are things that were written by a writer, probably a Daniel Waters. Conscious human being, we assume. Yeah, probably Daniel Waters, the writer of the excellent Heathers and the terrific Batman Returns. But all of the good stuff is swamped by Bruce Willis's planet-sized ego, his conviction that he is a talented comic actor, mm. and he's fucking not, <laughs> um, his control over the director because he's not a fucking director either it's it's just a monument to himself it is um as i said at the start a film about alchemy conspicuously lacking in any uh, movie magic and my i i think i've seen worse films and i think there are more objectionable films oh yeah but there's very few films which are as hollow yeah it's, it is um, it is it is a it is empty, and this you is, feel empty. It afterwards. is all about the ringing of cash tills. Yeah, um, Richard E. Grant escapes. Um, he's trying to give it some life. Yeah, he's trying to make it work for the audience, and so Sandra Bernhardt, and so is James Coburn to a degree. I mean, by this stage in his career, his, his reputation yeah. is basically bulletproof. You do think Coburn's doing this for the grandkids? So fine, let him let him do his stuff. But the the rest do not have any excuses. Um, no, I mean Andy McDowell is just like a wet dish rag of an actress, anyway. Yeah. Um, Danny Aiello, God knows why he's even in this. He's such a weird choice. I I can't say I've I'm, I'm familiar. I know he he was big in action or something like that, but no. It's... I, I get the impression that he was just friends with lots of people in Hollywood. Mm. And, and I think Bruce Willis really... liked being around him. And as, as as Grant says in his diaries, he was always telling all these tales of mm. his antics and his experiences, and he was a great raconteur, and everyone really liked him. Which is great, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he should be in this shit cat burglar movie. So do you think there are, apart from the occasional, and, and literally the good things about this line are, uh, about this film are, the occasional good line, amused, slightly amusing line, the dog flying out the window. I liked that. Yeah, that's quite um, funny. And I, whilst the performances of, of Grant and Bernhard set my teeth on edge, um, 
uh, I have a lot of goodwill towards him. Um, any other redeeming features, Tugs and Hawk? Because some people will absolutely say, um, no, I've got the Blu-ray, it's got amazing quotable lines. I think this is a piece of dreck, um, a 90s piece of flotsam that um, is significant really only for um, helping to kill um, Willis's career, almost going from a massive a hit like Die Hard... Um, it was when he suddenly started heading towards smaller roles to um, uh, character-based stuff. Uh, and these days, um, it would be great to be able to say that actually, yes, he's he's really mined that. I think his next film after this was Death Becomes Her, which was a real return to back-to-basics yes, comedy stuff. I remember seeing that. And it's a character role. Yeah. It's not something where he can just smirk and sneer and look and say, aren't I cool? He's actually having to act. And he's opposite Goldie Horn and Meryl yes, Streep. Yes, he is. And you cannot go up against actors like that and not bring your A game. And that film is a special effects film. It's the one film that you, that people are going, my God, you can see the whole blown through yeah. Goldie Horn. And actually, people were also... I remember watching that film at the cinema and being impressed by Willis and going, crikey, yeah. that's actually rather good. Because he's playing against type. He's playing this meek, it's cowardly, little man. Hype. He's a plastic surgeon, isn't he? Yeah. That gets done over by... He's, he's um, completely dominated by his wife, yeah. who's Meryl Streep. And he's an alcoholic, and he's mm. just this pathetic little shell of a human. But he minds it for all the comedy, because he does have good comedy instincts when someone else is in charge. Mm. And on Death Becomes It, you've got Robert Zemeckis. Mm. And, and Wes Anderson. I can see Wes Anderson doing good things with Bruce and, and Tarantino. It's, it's, it's when... It's projects where the director has to be in total charge, because Zemeckis is always very effects focused mm. and Death Becomes is a big effects movie with Wes Anderson you you know no one else can run a Wes Anderson movie it has to be him mm. because That's his movies are so designed and posed and yet they never feel fake or phony because he's really interested in and engaged with his mm. characters but when you get a filmmakers who go hey it's Bruce Willis the good old boy action hero die hard um, that's when we go, but there's nothing else there. There's just a hollow centre. And we're still seeing this now with the remake of Death Wish he did with Eli Roth. Which is an incredibly objectionable thing um, to do in this day and age. Absolutely. Um, totally out of tune with the zeitgeist. Um, and he's in lots of uh, Chinese-funded... These days... Um, yeah, it just uh, he, he just takes the cash. It is. He's and back in, in back in my youth, those would be straight to VHS um, bits of uh, dross, basically. So, um, very odd, very odd career trajectory. Um, who knows, maybe Tarantino will do a t- uh, John Travolta on him and rescue him again from um, career oblivion. Well, someone's got to do that to Quentin Tarantino first. <laughs> well, we'll see what happens to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Well, I don't know. Have I'm you talked enough it. about Hudson Hawk to last you a lifetime? Um, I've talked enough about Hudson Hawk so that my grandchildren will never have to hear those words. Well, listeners, um, I hope you like the thrill and the adventure. You see, the and thing, the hawk. The thing is, <laughs> after the last few movies I've shown you have all been really good quality yes, films. We've literally w- been going from masterpiece yeah. to masterpiece. I wanted to do a bit of a change of pace with you and talk about less regarded films like Dune and like Hudson Hawk. And fuck <laughs> me do I regret it. <laughs> Thanks to Anthony for making time for this podcast. Cinema Limbo is now on iTunes with 60 episodes available, so please download, review and subscribe. We're also on Twitter, at Cinema underscore Limbo, and Podnose is also on Patreon, so please do make a one-off or regular contribution to help us with our running costs. However, until next time, please help me.
Hit the ghost. 